<laughs> Hello and welcome to episode 315 of the Creighton Crowbar. It is the 12th of March, uh, 2020. My name is Chris Thurston, neat little tea sipping man. And joining me tonight is Marsh Davies, the tea swiller and spiller. <laughs> I actually inhaled a bit of it. Mm. Which is, uh, not how you meant, to, not how you meant to intake tea, generally speaking. Yeah, or indeed, uh, record an audio medium. No. It's we- just, uh, it's just us this week and our cups yeah. of tea. Yeah, no Tom Senior this week, who was uh, scheduled to make appearance, but actually the news this week prevented him. Mm, he was prevented literally by the news, because yeah. that's something that can happen when you are a journalist, I understand. How's your jumper? <laughs> are you all right? Yeah, I'm just still dripping all over myself, but that's nothing new. <laughs> mm. uh, yeah, so E3, cancelled, dead. It's over. Mm. Not forever. Oh. Is it? I don't know. Well, it depends, I suppose. Jeff Keighley has finally wreaked his savage revenge. <laughs> yeah, they, uh, I can't believe they cancelled it just because Jeff Keighley said he wasn't going to go. Yeah. It was an incredible, I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, but that's the I power. Mean, that is befitting of his status. It is. And it's the power, I think, the enduring power of writing something in your notes app on your iPhone, screenshotting it and then posting it on Twitter, <laughs> which I think is actually the most powerful rhetorical device available at the moment. Mm. Um so, you know, uh, it, I guess E3 had been ailing and trying to find a identity for itself for a fair old while, at least if you ask most people, and mm. it's dead now because Jeff said so. Yeah. Yeah. But as a result, obviously there is a, uh, a vacuum to be filled, uh, and mm. some people need to make the content that will fill that vacuum. Poor Tom. Yeah, indeed. Or, or at least have meetings about the content that might fill the vacuum. Yeah. Because, yeah, because that means no GDC next week. No. Because presumably incurred the wrath of Jeff at some point. Um, well, to be fair, quite a lot of announcements. I mean, the big. I can't believe Jeff Keighley cancelled the NBA. That's the <laughs> one that really surprised me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and South by Southwest. There is no end to his vengeance. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, but, but. He's in- banned all <laughs> Europeans from America. The VGAs this year are going to be really weird. Just a weird. <laughs> Is that why he stopped uh, Alex going to see Half-Life yeah, Alex as well? Well, we're allowed, Just because he, he wanted to keep the, the exclusive scoop on it. I guess so, yeah. Mm. Incredible. What but a yes. fiend. But, uh, <laughs> in, it, it, I mean, E3 almost uh, was losing at least part of its reason to exist this year because mm. presumably all of the console manufacturers who are gearing up to announce a new console are going to have manufacturing problems uh, in the right. future anyway. Yeah. So, I mean, that the dates for those might be pushed out, so they might want to push out their marketing cycle anyway, so they might not have announced or done anything at E3 anyway. I just can't believe a tweet from Jeff Keighley would have such a devastating <laughs> impact on trans-Pacific trade. <laughs> <laughs> it's genuinely he's incredible. Pa- he's a powerful... Yeah. I was going to say man, but is he really... BAFTAs is a live stream now. Really? Yeah. Go yeah. Everything's happened. Everything's happened. Yeah. Rest at the time of recording is still on. Uh, Jeff hasn't decided one way or another. His thumb wavers. Well, he hasn't come for us yet, but um, who knows what might happen next week. Well, we're breaking his prohibition to <laughs> self-isolate. And yeah. Here we are, the two of us in this room. Mm-hmm. You're maybe a metre and a half, two metres from me. So. I'm, I'm almost certainly sick of something. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. Like, you know, the dripping. <laughs> like, yeah, so a single, you know, just even a silent fart from you and mm. Jeff's coming. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, but I mean, this means that it's um, it's going to be a real weird couple of months for you know as we as we exit the newsless time mm. 
into now the sort of everyone trying to figure out when to do their news because the traditional structure for this sort of thing is completely out the window. There are no GDC announcements to be made. There mm. are no E3 presses to reserve stuff for. It's anyone's game. Yeah, that was <laughs> well, the, uh, obviously Twitter has been awful, uh, as it is always awful, but, uh, particularly entertainingly insufferable during this period. But I did see one plucky tweet suggesting that, uh, this is actually in some ways good for the games industry because, you know, people are staying at home. And so they're looking out for entertainment products that will keep them busy during their isolation. And that's where we come in, guys. That is legit a thing. Right. Like from a, from a money point of view, from a, like buying stocks in games at the moment is actually not a terrible call. Right. Mm. But as a, <laughs> it's not the social responsibility of the games industry. That's, that's the distinction I would make. Like, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a legit thing. People will be working from home and by which I mean playing destiny. <laughs> and so, you know, will it be, will it hurt the game? Well, I would say the games industry is probably more resilient than most also because it's naturally a remote working friendly yeah, industry yeah. to some extent, to some extent. Um, but no, I don't necessarily buy that the social responsibility of the games industry is to usher everybody through the. Oh, I don't know that they were the implying times. that, um, it was on us to rescue, uh, people's, uh, mental state or anything like that. I think they were mm. just trying to rally people in a positive way, which was a nice effort. But I, you know, I also <laughs> don't think it's probably gonna, gonna cheer that many people up to see, oh, new indies on Switch, you know, when the, yeah. Right. Uh, the world is falling apart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I mean, like, I, I'll say this for a fact. Like, I, you know, I have, I, I, I know what happens to like play account numbers in certain games when summer holidays hit and all the kids Yeah. Are yeah. Mm. So no, like, you know, not to obviously the, the seriousness of the situation is, is not what I'm making fun of here so much as, you know, kids being home from school, right? Like if more countries cancel school for mm. the month of March, then that will have a noticeable impact on online games. Cause you've got to better believe those kids are playing the mm. Fortnite, you know? So yeah, like Epic will do all right out of this. Probably. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, because you know, you just definitely, uh, nothing's less political <laughs> than a video game. <laughs> yeah. Was there other, other news? Yeah. Are you going to tell me what it was? I can do if you like. No. Oh, okay, oh fine. God. Yeah. Had to do the look, but here we are. <laughs> um, so, uh, excitingly, uh, a couple of hours ago, uh, Alan Hazelden announced his new game. Oh, yeah. And the, uh, writer of said game is the pod's own Pip. So it's actually very nice. It does look lovely. And I have played it so I can talk about it a bit if oh, you like. Yeah. Um, and I got permission to talk about it so I can, which is good. Cool. Um, so, it uh, is called A Monster's Expedition Through Human Exhibitions, which is a good name because it's very Googleable and a hard name to say. So thanks for podcasts. You've just... Marsh is attempting to fight a tiny little moth. The moth one. <laughs> <laughs> Been defeated by both tea and also a moth this evening. Never mind. Uh, we'll keep... <laughs> so you kind of like... You're playing this sort of arcade mode Mortal Kombat. It's fucking back for yeah, round two. Yeah. Jesus. It's, it's, um, I would say less than a centimeter in diameter. Oh yeah. It's, it's, it's a very small moth. <laughs> it's a tiny, like if you had your, some sort of Mothra scenario in mind, don't. It went straight for your jumper though, where that T was. So yeah. it's either after the jumper or the T. <laughs> <laughs> they uh, yes. like both. Anyway. The game. Uh, the game. So oh, it's coming back for you. It's not interesting to me at all. Incredible. Oh, 
Oh, I got it. Is 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 it all right? Um, you just dropped it down your trousers. <laughs> <laughs> it'll uh, it'll rally round. Uh, for the for the this is a. It's now sat on the third podcast chair. I think it's all special right. guest moth. <laughs> um, it's uh, well, Marsh managed to catch it and then drop it on his own pants. So I think it's 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 been through some shit. Come on, buddy. What do you think about Soka Bond? No opinions uh. from the moth, but we'll check in. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so, uh, it is a Alan Hazelden puzzle game in the manner of Soka Bond or, uh, Good Snowman is Hard to Build or them games, mm. uh, where you move around a little island, which is on a grid. There's a little monster with a backpack and you topple trees over by pushing them, at which point a tree becomes a log, which, uh, if you push it on its long edge, it will roll. Uh, and it will roll till it hits an object or goes in the sea, which is bad. Hmm. Um, or if you push it on its short end, you'll kind of push it back up upright and then it will push back down to horizontal, then back up upright, right? right. So like, okay. like a kind yeah, of, yeah. you know, caber toss kind of motion. Um, and, and there's tons of little interactions that this builds on top of. So once you top of the tree, its base becomes a stump, which is an obstacle for stopping rolling. But it also, you climb it if you stand on it, which allows you to walk onto the log. Which has, you know, hmm. uh, uh, implications for where you can go. And your goal is to essentially build a little bridge with your log to the next island. So there's usually a place on the island where, uh, if you put the log down long ways, it will form a little bridge and you can walk onto the next island. And it's an open world game. So there's not, it's not levels, but each island is a level, basically, hmm. in the traditional sense, like a fixed array of trees and rocks and bits and bobs. You push over a log and that allows you to get to the next place. Um, but it's sort of non-linear. There's usually sometimes multiple paths to get to a teleport point, which allows you to revisit other areas. Mm. Um, and, um, yeah, this, it's sort of, it's quite loose in its structure. So you're not being told like you've done X levels. It's just how far have you got? How much of the fog of war have you pushed back on this mm. big map? Um, uh, the, the, your, this little monster is the same monster from, uh, Good Snowman is hard to, uh, hard to build. Um, so it's kind of a sequel, I guess, mm. uh, to that. Uh, you got a cute little backpack, which I believe was Pip's idea, and it gives the monster. A, uh, it's a game about wearing a backpack and shoving things, so it's got a lot of Pip energy automatically. <laughs> um, um, but the uh, the other theme is that you're exploring a sort of outdoor museum, um, which establishes the, the kind of monsters' understanding of, of of human society. So you encounter these little exhibits um, with little plaques on them. Uh, explaining what these things were and where they came from. And these are a variety of mundane and kind of wild things, mm-hmm. uh, all of which is written by and conceived by Pip. Um, so uh, I obviously I, I know Pip pretty well, and I would say that this is a tour of Pip's mind. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, it's And it, I, I was really enjoying it. So, like, obviously I had, you know, I was aware of a lot of this stuff. I've come at it from a very unique perspective. But it's nice to, uh, you know... And I appreciate that I'm biased, but like, it's nice to kind of have that as a sort of accompaniment to these puzzles. Like sometimes it's all it, you know, what it amounts to is essentially is giving some flavor to the rocks and the other kind of obstacles that would, mm. you know, otherwise just be geometry that to help shape the quite technical puzzle. The other game that it's quite a bit like is Steven's Sausage Roll. And right. I was going to say, cause the, the rolling aspect of it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, Alan's log jam, they could have called it. <laughs> they didn't for good reason. Mm. Um, but, um, 
uh yeah i uh, i think it's uh, it's there's something nice about getting a sort of getting a joke as a reward for your kind of brain puzzling mm-hmm. is is a very pleasant thing i think this sort of um yeah it's it's sort of it's not uh a narrative necessarily well i think there's a there's a degree of narrative but it's not a like a a story you're discovering right uh, you know i think it's extremely unlikely that it turns out you're in a coma um which just just to let you know which genre of indie game this is <laughs> like I see. um and and as a result this isn't quite just, it's just it's it's nice it's sweet huh. and um i yeah uh, when, sure. when's it coming out because it said 2020 it didn't specify this date. year then, right, i okay. guess i i don't know so um or if i had any idea i probably shouldn't say so like oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um and obviously you know I, I feel like i didn't caveat this because you know pip works on this and it's you know her job so mm. but obviously like a mega biased so pinch of salt mm. but people have done some nice write-ups so i played the little sort of first hour demo that i think was sent out to press as well and um john walker did a nice write-up for his new website oh, nice. and seemed to like it so that's good because he likes his puzzle games so i imagine it's good then isn't it yes <laughs> <laughs> it's got a reverse mermaid in it it does yeah does it's got a reverse mermaid? It's got lots of very funny objects in it. Does it have uh, a shrine to uh, Jessica Fletcher? It, so it's not that Pip. <laughs> like I think it's it's um, yeah no. There's there's a degree of authority. You pan out and you real, realize that the the world map actually is is a is Poirot's face. <laughs> yeah, <or> exactly. <laughs> um, it's good. The um, very early on, there's a plinth, an exhibit of a plinth. Um, but it's on a plinth, which is mm. just a good visual gag, which mm. I liked it very much. And the art's really nice as well. Like the, the artist, uh, Adam, I believe, has done a, a really nice job of realizing the ideas that Pip has come up with. It also, I mean, it's, it's also really, um, it's, it's really pretty looking, but it, it's interesting because it's sort of it's a different, I mean, it's, it's fully 3D now, mm. whereas, uh, a good snowman to hot was hard to build. It may have had 3D elements in it, but it presented as a 2D game. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's interesting that this art style feels very much in keeping with that. And yet at the same time, it's obviously jumped into a different dimension. Mm, it's very it kind of glorious, kind of, uh, soft edges to everything. And yeah. it's very kind of like you're watching through a slight, a gauze or something. Mm. It's, um, it's got a lot of nice, really incidental animations as well. Like if mm. you push against the, if you walk up to the, you can't walk into the sea. Um, but if you walk up to the edge of the island and sort of try to push, you know, left to get into the ocean, he just sits down on the beach. Oh, just sits like, <laughs> and that's the. I mean, it's a small thing. It's such a nice touch just to have the sort of mm. like. It always seems to be having a nice time, whatever's going on. And it's got the normal sort of, um, sort of puzzle solving aids of, um, like the controls are just up, down, left, right movement, and then either reset the whole island or go back a step, mm. and that's your lot. And and it does. I, I've explained the basics partly because I don't want to spoil other. Yeah, mechanics. that's always the the joy of uh, those. Games, but it does. Right? Um, I played enough to to sort of discover and, and then be really surprised by a nice sort of uh, moment that it plans for you, um, which revolves around another mechanic that it has, which is really cool. That just uses the same build, uh, very much the same building blocks to mm. and allow other things. So. Yeah, I would, I would not have the first idea how to start designing this kind of puzzle game. It's so out of my design wheelhouse that I find it very kind of like impressive, but it's cool. Good for Alan. Yeah. Good for Pip. Yes. Good for everybody else on the team whose names mm. I've forgotten. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully good for the people who play it. Indeed. What you've been playing? 
Well, I've been playing an indie game which is set in a coma. (laughs) That happens. Call of Duty. (laughs) (laughs) I have been playing that as well, but we'll get to that. Mm -hmm. But um, so the 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 first game I was playing this week uh, is called Iris and the Giant, Mm. uh, which pitches itself as a collectible card game slash roguelike. I don't really know how how useful it is to describe it as a roguelike because it's not as though the the it has a, a set progression of levels. Um, they don't really change. Like you'll fight different monsters, a sequence, you know, a different arrangement of monsters in each of these levels. But that's no different from really how you would play a CCG, where the deck is different each time. Right. Or the yeah, the uh, game of solitaire where right, yeah, which it. is not yeah. a roguelike really. <laughs> no. um, but uh, you do need. The, the, I think the reason the what they're getting at is that you do need to play it and fail. And then you earn things through repeat play, which then allow you to surpass those challenges more easily. Right. So you're earning cards uh, and stuff like this. Um, the game is, so each level is essentially you on one side. There are a series of columns of enemies who uh, will advance towards you as you destroy the ones at the front. Um, and you have different cards at your disposal, which can attack multiple enemies along the front row or maybe fire down a column of them mm. or maybe you can only do one attack but it's super powerful you can pick people off at range um and you or bring people to the front there's lots of different ways basically you're kind of manipulating this grid of enemies to your to your interests um and you have as enemies advance towards the front they have different attacks there's different species of enemies you know and um it's that, that that CCG combat system is actually very well honed. It's mm. it's incredibly nice and it's small, but it's very precise. It's not a long form game, really. It's not. It doesn't have any aspirations to become like a Gwent or anything like that. It's mm. it's a really contained set of mechanics. Um, but there is there is something nice about the way that you loop back and back and round through these levels because um, the more the, the further you get through it. You look mournfully at the moth. <laughs> I think it's dead. Uh, it's just sleeping. It's okay. having a nice little snooze. Um, but, but, so, so you, you, the ways that you fail change, obviously, as you get further and further through the game. And it's quite a nice way of introducing you to its various different, your various different vulnerabilities. So at the beginning, you have, you have like two health bars, essentially. So the, your normal health bar is just called will, mm. and enemies attack you and they take down your will. You lose your will, you die. But also, if you run out of cards in your deck, you're dead as well. Um, So you start off, um, and the enemies that are attacking you just deplete your will. um, And so that's how you die the first time. So then you're introduced to different cards that maybe allow you to attack attack more enemies and kind of more efficiently deal with those damage-dealing types. Mm. But then there are other enemies that are introduced which have resiliences to certain things. So you need to build up a diverse deck instead. Mm. And then eventually you realize that it's actually not... Uh, your willpower or the diversity of your deck that's so important is the number of cards that you can obtain so the game switches again to being about you know uh, acquiring more cards mid-play and finding strategies to pull cards away from enemies and things like this Hmm. that's all very nice um i like it um you (laughs) however it is attached to this sort of sanguine sanguine no not that's not the right word Mm, dolorous Saccharin. saccharin More dolorous than saccharin. Mm. I've changed my mind about what a word I was trying to say. Okay. Let's go with dolorous. Uh, storyline, uh, in which you are a misunderstood young girl, um, who is bullied 
and her father doesn't understand her and then she goes diving i don't know why and it seems knocks herself out as she plunges into the water and then has this catabatic dream where she is fighting her way through the legions of the underworld who appear to be mostly cats um which I is too have seen tom hooper's cats <laughs> <laughs> truly a, a, a plunge into the abyssal depths of hell <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> um and it's, it's got a, a really good art style. It's like, it's really graphic design, really bold, strong, simple shapes. It's almost like everything's made out of potato prints. It's that kind of level of simplicity, mm. but it's very kind of, um, arresting. Um, but I just, I don't really know why they matched it with this, uh, sort of plangent, weepy storyline. I don't want to dunk on it too much because it's obviously very earnest <laughs> mm. but at the same time there's like little cutscenes in which you know which are voiced in which the girl will say my father doesn't understand me i weep my tears fall like the rain and you're like mm-hmm. all right max Payne, chill out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah and then obviously you go and fucking murder a bunch of cats like i mean <laughs> the two things just don't really sit well mm. together like the mechanics of it are really pure and gamey and i think it actually be better if the two parts were just pulled apart they go and make their their slightly sad visual novel and then they have something which is much more kind of accessible and frivolous mm. i don't really know that it benefits from having this that's uh that storyline structure I don't really know that it benefits that much from having its, in inverted commas, roguelike progression system. Like, it might be better that it introduces you to some mechanics and then just says, right, from now on, here's the level that you play. That's the one level. It'll be randomized. Everything's in it. That's yeah, fine. It's a solitaire game. Yeah. And that and that's absolutely fine because it has all of the stuff you need to make it a really good card game, basically. But Yeah, right. That's interesting. Um, Alex and I were talking last week on the pod about like what's a roguelike mm. and which is just one of them thrilling discussions that won't die. <laughs> but I think the point we arrived at last week that may be relevant to this is roguelikes tend to have a sense of motion. Like, that's one thing that defines them. Progress into the dungeon. Yeah. How far you got, how deep you got in Spelunky. Um, but it's also change, how, right? How far you can... Yeah, change over time. But also, but that is tends to be measured through... You know, you're on a journey in a roguelike, typically, mm. right? Like, how far up the spire can you get? How how can you get in FTL? Not to say that visuals can't be broken, but a game that repeats is not roguelike yeah. necessarily like a game you can fail and have to start again fifa isn't a roguelike because <laughs> yeah. all the football stops <laughs> and you have to do a new one and this time they're playing with cheeses yeah exactly like, oh, oh god. god ronaldo's got the head of a bear now <laughs> that's literally no. the only football player i can name <laughs> yeah. not bernaldo <laughs> <laughs> but also what is what is roguelike about that that you start again, but now it, you've got Bernaldo. <laughs> <laughs> that is more, that is more roguelike. Oh yeah. Like the roll of the dice rearranges the elements oh, of like the, the game. Seed, yeah. I think that's important in a yeah. roguelike. Right. It's not yes. just about linear progression and repeating that linear progression. It's about the, the, uh, the environment uh, and the yeah. challenges and the things at your disposal are in some way shaken up each time. Right? Yeah. In your imagination, is Bernaldo on your team or is he like an encounter that you've had? I like to think he's on everybody's team. <laughs> in every seed or just in the... <laughs> <laughs> Not just in yours. He plays for all of the teams and he can kick the ball anywhere he likes because he's a fucking bear. And are yeah. you going to tell him no? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But yeah. Okay. This is a... This is a good game, I think. I don't know how to judge them, <laughs> but I think this sounds good and I like it. Yeah. Um so yeah, not a roguelike then. No, it's 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 nice though. 
Mm. And, you know, I, I don't know how well it's done. It, it I don't know. It, it just appeared very briefly on, uh, on, on, I think the nine second trailer Steam Twitter account and mm. then, uh, had, had heard nothing more about it. Um, it has disappeared as far mm. as I can tell, but yeah, entertaining. If you're looking for a little CCG ish itch to scratch, then what's its name again? Iris and the Giant. Iris and the Giant. Yeah, I don't really know how the giant figures into it because I haven't finished it yet. I've encountered <laughs> Bernaldo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the giant of the title. Yeah. Uh, do you want a football at your head. <laughs> <laughs> and that wakes you up. Perfect. Because he was your favorite footballer player and he's come to visit you in hospital after mm. your diving accident. And he was, he was, um, he was phoned by your dad who actually does understand the end. Mm. It's a beautiful Thanks, story. Thanks, Bernaldo. <laughs> Uh, uh moving, moving stuff. What have yeah. you been um, playing? So, um, I'm going to give you the fucking hot take choice. Oh, uh, I can talk about Hunt Showdown. So I've had a bit of a, uh, a hectic week and, uh, yeah. I'm going to be honest with you listeners of the podcast. I didn't think I was going to be on the podcast this week, so I'm not prepped mm-hmm. really. So I can talk to you about the recent travails of the destiny community, a new season of destiny mm-hmm. Two launched this week, season of the worthy, but is it oh. the community says no. Oh, but uh very very loudly or we could talk about hunt showdown but i suppose we'll do that anyway we will do that anyway okay so let's talk about destiny all oh, right yeah i've been mm-hmm. watching you um pop up on steam playing destiny at times and uh, when you probably should have been working and uh <laughs> i know this because i was playing at times i probably should have been working yeah, yeah i tend to have it on because um it, it alt tabs real well so. oh yeah that's what i do with hunt as well it's just well, hunt it's doesn't just alt tab well so i know that you're <laughs> Hunt alt tabs wheezingly and it, it's not happy about it at all. No. But yeah. Whereas Destiny, mm, it just, I can just listen to the piano, shadow keep piano music while I'm, mm. while I'm uh, pretending to work and then uh, alt tab and play a strike. Nice. A good time. Um, so basically this week, uh, Destiny's, uh, season of the worthy, mm. uh, began and, um, is it so is is there something really novel and new about this? So no, so Destiny 2 has been season based for a while and then at the beginning of September right. when they launched a new expansion they they changed the way that seasons work. So you wouldn't say that Worthy's original. <laughs> Come back Chris. <laughs> it's gone to join the moth. No, I wouldn't Marsh. Oh. Um the uh so <laughs> but this comes after season of dawn. Mm. and season of the undying um so basically destiny season means some new activities things to grind stuff like that new gear to go and pursue a new set of sort of uh achievements to get that you can only get during the span of this particular season new cosmetics and a big patch to the sandbox this is the combat sandbox basically right um what is kind of interesting about this? And I, I um, had gotten back into Destiny last week, kind of in a way. I always get back into Destiny when I have a big deadline. I have found because it's uh, it's the thing in my life, and I think I've spoken about this at the end of the last season. It's the thing in my life that fits around having things to write and hmm. wait for approvals on and things like that. Whereas all my other hobbies kind of require all the games I'd be into require way more attention than it does. I think it's often the role that MMOs play in a lot of people's lives. But I, I sort of largely missed the previous season and then came back right at the end and managed to finish everything basically in a week, which was good. Um, and then um, was pretty excited for this one. And it has uh, 
launched really, really messily. Mm. And it's kind of surprising, but I think it, it sort of speaks in an interesting way to the kind of state of that game. Cause I, and I've, and, and I've had to kind of revisit my, somewhat revisit my feelings towards it, but not necessarily because I'm having a bad time, but because the community is so angry that it kind of forces you to go like, hang on, is this, huh. you know, is this bad or is this just rage? Can you just outline what, what a yeah. season entails generally? So normally it's, so you get, there's a season pass, which is like a $10, battle pass type thing Hmm. which um there's like it's the same as the fortnite model the dota model there's one track of rewards that is free that you level it up and then there's another track of rewards that you get if you have paid for it as well and some stuff is gated based on paying for content otherwise it's a big themed update usually moves the story forward in some way there's like a new threat or something like that happening there's usually like a new set of activities like public event style activities out in the world with their own set of things to do and level up and new loot to get and and that kind of stuff and then normally some other kind of things around the side and like usually little updates to the different sort of parts of the game as well um so they call them kind of pursuits in destiny but like there'll be uh you know the game kind of breaks down into like pve strikes which are basically dungeons that take 15 minutes or crucible which is regular pvp or gambit which is pvevp yeah um like that those kind of breakdowns each of those things will normally have a new set of things to do like a new what's called a pinnacle weapon which would be a new thing to go chase over the course of the season so that's a boss no pinnacle weapon which is usually like oh. a, a new gun that is only available for that season or right that makes more sense for some reason i thought you said the word boss which is why i was checking the word boss but you didn't say the word no, boss that's at a all. pinnacle weapon what did you say before that uh pursuit mm. pursuit <laughs> Bernaldo. <laughs> <laughs> now you're talking my language. Yeah, exactly. Um, like it would be something like a, a, you know, a pulse rifle that would be, have a fancy name like Bernaldo Saber. <laughs> right. And you would spend, you know, two weeks of your life grinding a specific kind of kill in mm. the crucible to earn it. Um, and then there are other things. So recently there's been these seasonal titles, which you, uh, you know, uh, uh, little uh, appellations to your name that you can only earn if you complete a sort of list of particular achievements that are specific to a season. So once it's gone, it's gone. Hmm. Um, and uh, so to explain what's kind of happened, there's a few things. One is um, I think they, the skip to the end, I think what I'm going to end up saying about this is a lot of this is a comms issue oh, rather really? than a really an implementation issue, I think. But there are some broader implementation things that are due to the kind of, kind of game it is and maybe MMOs as a whole and, and how you make this kind of service work. Um, so they talked a lot about what was coming with the new, uh, expansion. They didn't say what wasn't coming. And that is a big problem because it means that players expect certain things because they have become a pattern of, right. And then when they're not there, players wonder why, um, you know, I have no doubt that the same amount of effort and expense was invested in making this season as all the previous ones. And that investment is just in places where the players can't see it immediately, but it, it broke away from the pattern of what players expect to see day one, big patch day, all excited, logging in to check out the new staff. It broke away from that pattern because this season there aren't any ritual weapons. If you run around to the various vendors for those particular game modes, there's nothing there. Hmm. Um, where the previous season had 28 achievements you needed to get for the title, this one has seven. And that at first glance is fewer. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's like, well, there's less then. Mm. Uh, and, um, you know, one of its big things that it's bringing back is one of my favorite things from Destiny 1, but is a very troubled thing, which is a PvP mode called the Trials of Osiris, which is very, very sweaty indeed. It's the sweatiest place on earth. It's just enormously sweaty. It's extremely stressful and it's very, very high end kind of 
PvP challenge. It's not going to be for everybody. Mm. And that's not a great fit for flagship type feature of the season because it's mm. A, already divisive, and B, it's really only fully exploitable by a, ultimately a small percentage of the people who play the game. Right. Um, and, um, and then, so on top of that, there's, uh, the new activity. So it starts with, you know, cutscenes, some new story missions and things, but they're fair, they're over fairly quickly. And then you're into this season's activities, which, um, is sort of like, here's the thing. It's a riff on things Destiny has previously done. Destiny has always done this, right? Destiny, it relies on the fact that its core loop is so good and its guns feel so nice and the abilities are fun to use and the enemies are fun to fight. The, all it ever does is provide you different contexts and what, in which to do that. So, um, last season was about going into, I think I said at the time, an old man's magic washing machine, um, to solve time crime. This season is about playing, um, beach volleyball, uh, to wake up a real big Terminator. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, and so you, you go to particular public events, you do this particular public event, which fire money is actually one of the best ones they've ever done. Hmm. And then you use the points you earn from that and various other activities to level up these sort of bunkers, like these sort of ancient weapons bunkers that are, there's only one open at the moment and more will open up as the thing goes on. And you level these things up a bit like your kind of resource farming nodes in a clicker game. Hmm. And that increases the rewards you get from various things and unlocks new rewards and new pursuits. And every day enemies invade your little bunker and you can go in and turf them out and you can upload the upgrade. You can earn the ability to have cool robots that you can deploy into your base to help you and stuff like that, right? All it comes down to is reasons to go a place and shoot a man, which is what they provide. But this time, apparently this time, some combination of the lack of expected breadth elsewhere meant players, the community overwhelmingly went, this is the same thing again. And I think that is a really interesting hair to split because it's always been the same thing. Right. You know, before this seat, before the season of the magic washing machine, it was the season where you went into a big time hole to fight a robot, which is actually kind of similar to the, the next one um and you did this over and over again um for treats um like the you know the season before that if i'm getting my order right is you well you know they've done variants on a basically a form of play in destiny which is called the menagerie like three times now like they're always doing this and that's not necessarily a good thing or a bad thing but the noise of the complaining isn't consistent with how similar or not the ideas actually are right like often in destiny the granularity of it is what matters. Like I quite like the new event, which is called a Seraph bunker or a Seraph launch or something like this beach volleyball basically, but it's cool and it's nicely designed for a few different reasons. Mm-hmm. So it's in the open world. So it's any, any players who show up can participate rather than it being like a match made activity that you match into with a certain number of other players. You have to launch, you have to assemble and launch a satellite basically. So you have this sort of launch pad, which is also like a kind of nano fabricating 3d printer in the middle, and then three square capture points, uh, in a kind of radius around it. And any given time, one of these support towers will activate and it will start charging up and enemies, shitloads of enemies spawn. They're really pushing how many, how much stuff they can throw at you. And the tower kind of increasingly begin to whine a bit like the destiny community. <laughs> and, uh, and, um, when it, uh, is ready to activate, if there are, uh, no, um, enemies in the, uh, square around it, basically at all, it will like fire six, um, orbs of energy into the air. 
like they'll go arcing through the air off into the wherever they want to land. Um, these can then be grabbed by players who chuck them at a ball, um, which is in the kind of top of that support tower. And every time the ball is hit, it moves on a path towards the central tower. And the idea is to hit it with enough of these charges to push it all the way to the satellite tower, at which point you give that tower a bit of charge and then play moves to one of the other points. Hmm. If there are any enemies in the radius when the tower fires, it only fires two balls, which means if you struggle to clear it, you're not right. going to get enough to throw it into the center. But there's a bunch of things. Like, all destiny comes down to stand on plate or throw ball. Though, like, it's a lot like crufts. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and, and, um, and the, this has always been the case. So, but they've done a good job with this one because it has maximum sort of drama with those pieces. Like, there's the variant of this where the tower does produce these balls of energy, but they are, uh, they appear on capture pads and you go and pick them up. The fact that it fires them into the air, like, like, like volleyballs kind of v- bouncing off adds an element of like running to grab them and trying to focus on that versus helping someone else or not die or right. fight a particular enemy. The fact that you have to throw them accurately, like some balls in Destiny, when you throw them, just bounce on the ground and you can go and pick them up again. These ones explode. So if you throw it at the big orb in the middle and miss, mm. you fucked it up. But also as soon as you have excess ones and you can use them as weapons and like, uh, by upgrading your own bunkers, you can spawn extra special weapons for yourself in that mode and things like that. So there's a bunch of different moving pieces and it's actually genuinely pretty fun because, you know, you get, and the fact that, um, it's not a question of did you lose control of the capture point, but was any enemy in it is really nice because losing control of the capture point is usually like a slow fail. If it happens, you get overrun and you lose slowly. Whereas this means like a single, you, you miss a single gribbly little, dude and he manages to sneak in at the edge and you have that drama of like right you have both the drama of we can't shift this boss monster that stood there we need to pour loads of damage into them and that's exciting but also the drama of like shit a little robot's making a break for it like someone you know rugby tackle that that dude <laughs> out of the way and it's quite you know like yeah. destiny gets closer and closer and closer to just being a sport game every with every um every event like this but it works it's nice hmm. it's fine like it's a thing to do in destiny um, I suspect a lot of the ire in the initial sense is because n- nothing in that initial set of updates um, blows you away, really. Like, mm-hmm. there's not, like, it's familiar, it's, um, and there's no, like, amazing new weapon or amazing new thing to go chase. Um, because of another thing which they're doing, which is to moving, uh, they did a, uh, Luke Smith, the director of Destiny, did a, a blog post two weeks ago now, I think, about like the future of the game and their kind of assessment of it. And it's interesting. I find, and I'm in this business, so I sort of offer this kind of criticism, kind of like knowing that it's the kind of thing that I could get wrong. Mm. But it's Destiny, Bungie's blogs are great when they're doing well and they struggle when things aren't quite going well. And Destiny's always been through these periods of time. They, they, I, I love the writing in that game and I love that world a lot and i like that bungie has slightly arch ambitions for its loot shooter um you know i'll take their world building over that of many equivalent companies any day of the week but their blogs can often be a little bit pretentious i think Mm. they they don't um they have fun sometimes but they can be a bit arch and that's fine i think when you're winning but when you're not winning 
being arch about the fact that you're struggling can open you up to criticism i think right yeah yeah and so they talked about things like the necessity of um uh the necessity of um having weapons stop leveling up with you at a certain point so you're encouraged to move on and find and value other loot because the game can't keep expanding infinitely Hmm. that kind of thing um, but that is ultimately taking something away from players. And I think this kind of quite arch approach to communicating doesn't account for the emotional impact that the decision, those things have. People yeah. aren't rational. You know, uh, the people that these articles are for and these patch notes are for are not employees of Bungie. They, they don't need to be just, don't have the design justification. They will have an emotional reaction to it. And I think sometimes they fail to account for that. Um, so the community was already a bit of a wary place. Like we know our medicine's coming. Like we've got to have our nice guns taken away so that we can have good guns in the future. Mm-hmm. But that's that's not a fun vibe. The other thing they did, which is wild, and I don't know why they did it like this, is uh, in Destiny you have emblems, which are like little banners that go behind your name, right? Okay. It's one of many different cosmetic items you can pick up. In Destiny 2, they introduced uh, 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 banners that had emblems that had a stat tracking component. So this emblem tracks your kills in the Crucible. This emblem tracks how many gold medals you've got in the Crucible. How does it track it? It changes like, color or something? No, it just, it just has a number on it. Oh, I like, see. Like okay. a gun in COD that tracks kills or something oh, okay. like that and displays it, right? Mm-hmm. So it means you can display a stat. Um, previously, these were married to a particular emblem. So um, this created some things, issues where it was like, um, you know, I like this emblem, but all, I like the way it looks, but it's going to permanently advertise the fact that I did this one particular strike once ever. Or that I have a bad yeah. KD ratio. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. um, you know what I mean? That kind of thing. Or you want the stat, but you don't want the emblem. Uh, so if players for a while had been asking, um, to be able to switch them around or mm. switch them off, switch the stat trackers off or something like that. Um, also it, they, but there's a lot of these and they tracked an incredible variety of very specific things. So that allowed players to express themselves in some way. Mm. So with this expansion or this, this season, one thing they did is, um, add the ability to set your tracker and your emblem separately. Good idea on paper, except they got rid of all the existing trackers. Not only that, but they wiped almost all of them, Um, which I don't understand why that's a database necessity for something like this. So mm-hmm. they, they reset it down to like a, a set of trackers that are all pretty generic, like kills with void weapons this week or something like that. And in the vast majority of cases appear to have reset everyone's counters to zero. And so this is the apocalypse as far as some people are concerned, because people like these mm. games are about making the numbers go up. You can't make the numbers go down if you're the developer or if you're going to take something like that away, you have to be so careful about how you message it. Mm. And they, they weren't and they didn't really give people warning about this. And uh, the the example of this is that I can give an example from our own community. The previous season had an event where players all poured resources into a central bank to make a space thing happen. And you could earn an emblem that tracked how much you had personally donated. And, uh, you know, a uh, long-standing community member, Kane, donated 69,000 points to his uh, particular if his particular donation so that he could have the emblem that says 69,000 crystalline fractaline donated on it forever. Um, you know, someone the night before the season launch was like on Twitter, was like, look, I donated 3 million points worth. You know, no one will ever beat this because this is over. Um, someone on the Destiny subreddit said that their dog died in January, you know, in February. And so died on the 15th of February. So they d- donated 
15,220 bits to immortalize the number 15,220. I don't know if it's true or not, but give players a canvas to draw on and they'll draw a dick or mm. they'll, they'll make it their own. All of that stuff got wiped overnight. Oof. Yeah. And it's just such a big oof. Like it's not the same as wiping people's inventories or, you know, the actual mm. power granting stuff, but it's a way that people express the things they've done. And so with no good answer to that, and no real big wow factor coming out of the expansion and in the light of like quite an arch proclamation about what the game needs in order to succeed. It's just this recipe for like a really deeply, deeply unhappy mm. player base, which is like, it's a shame. It's cause it's like, it just feels avoidable. Like it feels like, yeah, you know, the emblem thing, no one was asking for it really. It's not an essential fix unless their database needed to change or something. I don't get it. Like, yeah, there must have been they. They must have been some other reason that they did that. I can't imagine that they would make that choice. Yeah, right. It just it's it's a it's a strange it's a strange one. Like, I don't know. It's a, it's a weird vibe. So I I came away with a bit of a weird feeling about it, and then I've been you know sort of poking at it, and I realised like, and there's a there's a good article on Vice at the moment, which we can put in the show notes by Doc Worth Burford about sort of the state of Destiny two in general. And it, it reads, I think it's written contemporary to this season, but it doesn't talk about the seasons directly, but it talks about sort of recent malaise in that particular blog post. And it has lots of good points about the issues with the game versus its predecessor and MMOs generally in games like Warframe and Monster Hunter. But, um, I think one of the key, like, one of the really interesting things about this is, Destiny 1 was a game of linear progression, pretty much. It had a lot of bars to fill, a lot of factions to rank up, things that could keep going up forever. And emblems kind of represented that to some extent in Destiny 2. Destiny 2 has always been a game of cycles of progress that kind of resets after a season or progress that is, you know, leaps forward that you take in, uh, over the course of the games, you know, that make your older gear invalid, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, l- 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 the game is full of cycles. Like anyone who plays, you, you know, bounties that you pick up again the next day to do them again in slightly different contexts, things that you sort of generate over time. And then, um, and so you players are constantly having the experience of having their progress sort of stymied. And there are tons of issues with it, including loot that just becomes to- so totally irrelevant that it may as well just give you the resources you get for dismantling it. Um, and those are all issues. The one thing that occurred to me that Destiny 2 does have over its predecessor, and the reason I think I still really like it and think it's a very strong game, is each of these seasons also adds things that will be in the game forever. They're effectively quest lines that lead you to a, a, a great weapon or a cool thing. And that is where a lot of this investment seems to have gone because those things all have some bespoke element to them or some kind of, you know, story or kind of custom voice line that kind of leads you in that direction. And they really are the heart of the game. And what's interesting is you never see the community talk about them. Hmm. And I know I'm approaching this more from like a kind of design point of view than anything else, but the thing that's interesting to me about that is that I think will winnows this set problem set down to its actual kind of sharp edge, which is, if you are an average player and you you play for some of a season, not others, you miss whole seasons occasionally because you take a break to play something else, then there's just so much stuff in the game to do. Like there's so much stuff to pursue from previous seasons that you plug away at the new stuff. And when you're not doing that, you can jump into quests. So that's what I've been doing this week, really. Like basically writing, 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 waiting, 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 chatting, 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 alt-tabbing into Destiny and going and finishing a bit of a quest I missed from two years ago. Hmm. And say, oh, I didn't realize this whole environment was here. That's cool. Or I haven't seen this story before. That's neat. And then, you know, whatever. I will never run out of things to do. And that's someone who's played a lot of this game. 
what if the situation I think they've ended up in is one where the most vocal people are the people who've done absolutely everything. They, they rinse every part of the, every part of the season within weeks of it being done. So they need every new season to revitalize every part of the game. And that's just not possible. It's such an interesting, I, I, maybe I've bored people to tears with this, but, but, but how do you fix that? You can't fix the fact that the community, there's a part of no, it which I, is super vocal. I don't think you can. And that's the thing that really sucks. Cause it's like, I, I don't, and I, this is one of the reasons I'm coming back around to calling it a comms problem. Like I feel like because I don't think Bungie talks down to the community. And in fact, I think sometimes having a little bit of a kind of arch tone in your blogs can be a sign that you respect the community's intelligence and you want to take them with you on your journey as designers or as game operators or whatever. Um, but I don't think they're talking to the emotional need of the community really. Mm-hmm. And I think it's telling that some of the big destiny YouTubers have gotten angrier over time and found more hay in being cross at you. Oh yeah. And this is ever the story. Like, you know, we've both worked in contexts where you have to pay attention to this kind of thing. Cause it's, you know, people, the one thing you don't want is people to stop caring, uh, because emotions in games communities tend to be polarized and they tend to flip polarity just as easily. So what you, what people hate, they love and what they love, they hate super quickly and i think that's the great thing about destiny is that no one's indifferent about it really at the moment at least in that community but it feels like um continuing to communicate about it in a relatively dry way risks pushing people away and that's i think how they end up in that scenario Hmm. like i don't uh, i feel bad for banging on about it i don't know how interesting like how you how you keep a game alive just by how you talk about it is to people but i think it's a really interesting example of like they didn't do anything wrong, really, but some X factor was missing from how they handled this and now, now Reddit's on fire. Like it's, <laughs> right. Um, yeah. What do you think they'll do, uh, to put out that fire? I think, I think the emblem thing is unusual because I think that's the first time they might need to actually roll something back. Yeah. Like I think just taking away people's pointless numbers was just a real bad idea. Mm-hmm. Like if that feature, cause it's like, if that feature wasn't there, no one misses it. I wonder if they can roll that back though, if it's been a proper database wipe. It would be insane to me if they had done that. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's, it's, or just add, add all of the old stats back as new trackers in this one mm. with the numbers that were on them originally and you fixed it. You know, like yeah. occasionally, ironically, ironically, they occasionally do emblems to commemorate times when the game breaks. <laughs> right. Like if you played during yeah. the era where one particular weapon was completely broken, you can get an emblem, which is of a man having his head exploded with a laser <laughs> forever. Cause they do have a sense of humor. That's good handling it. Yeah, yeah. That's a good way of saying, sorry, we overtuned this weapon and it mm. ruined PVP for a week. Right. Like that's what they kind of need here is they need a, they need a like, they need to get all the old trackers back and add a tracker that is like amount of Reddit upvotes you've got for your angry <laughs> post. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, something like that would be how they do it. I don't know. I wonder what they're up to at the moment. Cause the other thing that post seemed to confirm is that no destiny three this year. Oh, really? This is the year that it would happen if they were on, if they were sticking to the schedule. Well, um, again, I mean, where, where have they always released Destiny? Has it always been PC and consoles simultaneous? Uh, for Destiny 2, yeah. Destiny 1 didn't come out on PC, so. I wonder, I mean, it could be tied to an exclusivity deal is what I was thinking. Mm, and in mm. which case, you know, who knows? Because it's I doubt they would consoles. do that again, given how big PC has been yeah. for them. Yeah. Um, the other thing is they might, so this is one of the things they might not be doing it mm-hmm. because they got an expandable free to play game now. Maybe fixing that is the more important thing. Um, but there is heavily rumored that's what they're working on. And certainly 
the things they're doing at the moment give me the vibe of a studio that has different pans in the fire. Hmm. So either a different game completely or, mm-hmm. or something else, right? The, the, the seasons aren't showing necessarily the full, don't feel like they're showing the full production might of a, of a big studio with lots of resources. It feels like a live team keeping a game going. Right. Um, but yeah, sorry. That's my, uh, my, my GDC talk about how not to <laughs> make Reddit angry at you. Um, but I do like the shoot game. It do make me happy. Mm. Good well. bangs. Good bangs. Good bangs. Good objects. Uh, good, good sounds. I like the funny space men, mm. uh, and the funny space women. And I enjoy the, uh, uh, very, uh, surprisingly complicated, um, story that they're telling. Mm. I think they could, orbs. um, they could turn this, this PR, um, uh, snafu round by introducing maybe, a famous football player, but with the head of a bear. Mm. I don't exactly know what his role would be in that uh, ball-based conflict, but it, it has balls in it, so it's, you know. I mean, it's it, that's the thing. It's got everything Ben Aldo wants. Mm. It has a, a big open wilderness to roam in. <laughs> <laughs> it has balls. It has mm-hmm. capture points. And he there's just, loves capture points. The, and there's just a lot of, uh, there's a lot of anger in the air at the moment. There's a lot of... <laughs> that gets him really going. Yeah, it does, yeah. He loves a furious crowd. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah. yeah, I thought we'd gone quite deep on the law behind uh, Ben, ben Aldo. Aldo now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, where? In, what have you been doing? <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Good segue. Well, I mean, the, uh, the way into that was to say that I've also been playing a you know highly expandable free to play game, mm, act, which is yeah, uh, an Activision. Yes, mm. Call of Duty Warzone, or to pronounce it correctly, Warzone. <laughs> Um, which is, uh, yeah, it's, it's a free to play version of Call of Duty with a battle royale focus. And I have been playing it a bit with friend of pod, Jim Rossnio. And as he said to me, it's the kind of game you don't really need to play because you can just imagine it. <laughs> and, um, you can do that for us right now. I mean, out loud. Oh, I see. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, if you've played any battle royale game before, um, it's exactly that. Uh, but with, um, Call of Duty's guns in it, really. Uh, it's kind of, what's most surprising about it is how little it has actually changed up that formula Mm. or how the big innovations that it does have, I say big, how the innovations it does have don't really seem to alter the kind of tone or frivolousness of that, that chaotic thing. I to be fair to it, I do enjoy it. It's good, frivolous, stupid tit about fun as all PUBG slash Fortnite style games are. Mm. Um, not hunt though that's very serious well exactly that's a diff- that's a completely different kettle of poison and s- mm. horrible squirmy fish that'll eat you if you make too much noise the thing about battle royale games is that there's a load of players on a map and the playable space slowly decreases and outside of that playable space you die mm-hmm. and so it basically focuses the battle until there is only one winner or one team that wins um and that is exactly the format in this uh, you also jump out of a plane as you do in PUBG and you land somewhere. There's guns that are just gracelessly floating around in rooms as in PUBG. Um, and you pick them up and you murder people and then the map gets smaller and you either win or you die. The difference here is that, um, so there's, there's a couple of minor kind of alterations to these mechanics. One of which is that if you die and you're on a team, maybe if you die, I don't, I don't know if you play solo because I haven't played solo, but if you die, I think you're forced to play in, in teams pretty much anyway. Um, teams are three. 
if you die, you don't die completely. You are instead captured in inverted commas and taken to a gulag, which oh, appears, which is really grimly realized. It's this horrible, it's, it's, I mean, the game's set in Russia. Everybody in it is from London, weirdly, but it's, it's, it's in Verdansk, Russia. And this <laughs> gulag is this grim looking, uh, prison shower room. Uh, shower block, uh, where you fight against another dead person and whoever wins that battle is then allowed to with parachute guns back. or like with your bare hands? Uh, both actually. Uh, you, uh, it, it's random what you get equipped with, but sometimes it is just your knuckles. Um, <laughs> so then after you've defeated the other man in this brutish combat, which other people who are also dead watch, they spectate from a kind of like raised walkway. Um, <laughs> Uh, you can then I was parachute back like, into I, I wouldn't map. say I was only up, but I was like, I was like, okay, battle round, battle round, battle round. Now I'm fucking in. Well, <laughs> I mean, there is something to be said for that. Like, at least it has, like, uh, uh, Call of Duty's aesthetic is, I mean, isn't as much as it has one, this sort of humorous Kevlar scented thing, uh, for people who think it's really cool to have like a skull on your mask. It's, 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 um, happy meal toy Tom Clancy. Yeah. Yeah. Every, so one thing that actually did delight me in this game is every time you pick up a gas mask, there's this like, aggressive sting of rock guitar. <laughs> but you could just put it down again and pick it up again. Is it's that like, like a, is that like a Pavlovian response to seeing like a leather mask? I don't know. It's just a gas mask. <laughs> down. But, um, it only seems to happen when you pick up gas masks as well. I don't know. I don't know what it is. Um, <laughs> But like in general, I mean, that's really the only thing that happens in the game, which you could, you could imagine was the subject of some kind of ironic mirth. Uh, mm. everything else in the game is just so fucking po-faced, even though the chaos in it is completely ludicrous, uh, as mm. with any kind of PUBG style game. But so this, this addition of being able to parachute back on your team, um, that's one thing. And also the fact that you can, even if you fail at that, your team can buy you back by doing weird little submissions, which is basically just going to different checkpoints and opening boxes. Uh, and you get money for that. And then you could go to another box, which happens to be a shop somehow. And you open that and then you can buy things like kill streaks. You know, the, the con, sorry, mm. you can't buy kill streaks, but you can buy the things that were previous kill, kill streak yeah. activities in previous games so in previous games you'd get enough kills and you could call in an airstrike now you just buy it um, right. but you can also buy back dead team members um, who parachute in mm. on you so you'd think that that kind of recycling of team members would change the game in some way um, and it might do if uh, if enough people who know what they're doing are playing it simultaneously but I don't know that you're ever going to see that in a public match. Like this game is free and already has six million players. Most of them are going to be idiots. That doesn't, that's not going to gravitate towards some kind of skill based strategic layer where being able to respawn your teammates really is actually going to make a difference because somebody's just going to arrive in a truck and run them over, you know, <laughs> honking all the way. Um, and that's fine because it's a tit about game and it's not, you know, it's not a game that is, design for people who care about strategy or would even notice it if it was there i suspect mm. it's it's for people who look at the number of guns that are in the game and go like wow that's got to be good then um and it has an awful lot of guns uh they're just i mean it's so many guns it's meaningless to <laughs> differentiate them they're just again like i mean you know you think about the game shooters of your like unreal tournament or quake or whatever and somebody's really thought about the kinds of weapons, the, the arsenal that is in those games. Mm. It's kind of very limited. Each one serves its own kind of purpose, strategic, tactical purpose. Um, 
in this, it's just, they're just all fucking the same gun, basically. They're all just things that fire bullets. Who cares? And it doesn't matter because the people don't, people aren't interested in really. I mean, maybe they'll fetishize one weapon over another, but really, really it just doesn't fucking matter. You know, <laughs> they're just guns. Um, and they all sound amazing. They all sound and feel amazing. That's the one thing that this has really over, uh, Fortnite and Pudge is that the, you know, the, the heft of, uh, a multi-million dollar game series that has been in production for decades mm. now has reached this kind of point of finesse where it can just import its really good collision systems and animation systems and stuff and and its amazing gun feel and all these things into something which is just basically a, a format for fucking round yeah and so it feels really good when you mantle over things um everything you, you walk up to is this mount on it which is uh, <laughs> some reason amusing um <laughs> But yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just, it is what it is. It's going to be hugely successful. I've played three or four hours of it. I'll never play it again because I know exactly what awaits me there. I think. Nice thing about that though is like next year there might be a new Call of Duty out or something like a traditional Call of Duty and you might think, should I play this? I want to hear an MP3 go Brrr. and you'll just play that instead. Yeah. I wonder how it's going to affect further MP3, Call of Duty. I mean, MP5 incidentally for what it's worth. Oh, well, oh, MP5. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You could play an MP3 that just made the sound of an MP5. You could too meta for me. You could make an MP4 of the uh, MP3, <laughs> MP3 playing That's the sound of an MP5. <sighs> yeah, I wonder how it will wonder affect how that worked um, out audio format, video format, gun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was quite an escalation for that programmer, wasn't it? Really? Yeah, maybe that's the next step of new media. Is mm. what, what would be the MP6 though? Uh, mm. What goes beyond space gun? station? <laughs> what is to gun as gun is to video format? Space station. Space station. Yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then Bernardo, MP7, <laughs> as we know him. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, I don't know. If there's really anything you can say about. It. I mean, nice to gun sometimes. No, nice friend. Nice to gun with friends sometimes, but it's not hunt. And so, what's the what's the fucking point of it existing? Yeah, might as well just delete it. Do you get kills in this game? Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, it, it just feels so meaningless. <laughs> you know, especially at the beginning of the game. It's strangely paced. I expect they'll, they'll change this over time, but maybe partly to account for the recycling of men's. Um, but the, uh, there doesn't feel to be the same urgency that there is in PUBG as the circle of, of survivability contracts. Mm. Maybe that's just happenstance in the games that we've played, but oftentimes it's felt quite lonely and we've just been in the circle, a big, big circle for a long, long time. And that's, then there's been no urgency for us to move. Whereas I always felt like you were pretty lucky in, in, uh, PUBG for, to, to, to luck out, you know, and yeah. be in the, in the middle of that circle for at least, you know, two cycles of it. Mm. I do but, like the being able to fight your way back in idea. That yeah, is it's cool. cool. Yeah. I, th- I think mostly because it answers the thing of like, it sucks to be on the back foot and have just died mm. and want a second go. You know what I mean? Like to like, I do find that in a lot of battle royale games, you wait for a fight for a yeah. long time and sometimes you're always the first, but you don't get to shoot a gun or you fuck it's, up. And yeah. You it's die. very arbitrary for sure. Yeah. yeah can, or it can be. And therefore making sure you always get to do a fight, even mm. if it's in prison. <laughs> Yeah, there is a chance that you can just double down on losing, though, and that may not feel very good. 
He says, not from experience, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> but and um, then your friends have to choose whether to buy you back. Which yeah, is, and they're like, yeah. I don't know, it's pretty buy, pricey. We could buy 10 seconds of a UAV <laughs> yeah. for the same price as you, and that's probably better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You going to play it? Yeah, probably. Hmm. Maybe. I mean, it's no hunt, is it? And the thing is, like, uh, the Destiny hole is yawning ahead of me. Yeah, I mean, the thing about Hunt is it, can, it continues to surprise me every game, mm. and there's new strategies that emerge with every game, and I don't think there's any going to be... <laughs> I don't think there is a strategic layer, really, to um, these sorts of games that much. Yeah. There's yeah. Twitch skills, for sure, mm. um, but otherwise, it tops out at, I'm going to hide in a building. Yep. And that's it. I'll, I'm going to shoot good, not mm. bad. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to honk my horn. Doot, doot. We don't honk at all in, in Hunt Showdown. No. It's bad to honk. Can you honk? Is there anything you can honk? You can, you can ring, ring bells. bells. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. What a game. Hmm. Got something to say about it? Anything you want to unburden yourself of? To the delight of our listeners, no, no doubt. Honestly, who- honestly, it's just, um, we've had a few emails and things, I think, over the last couple of weeks from people saying that they, or on posts on Discord saying that people weren't sure if they would like it and they tried it and they're glad they did. Hmm. So I understand that, um, I think some of the dismay at the constant hunt chatter is the way people feel whenever we all get into the same game, what we want to do and talk about. But some of it is that it's not a game that immediately sells itself as like, you should try this and also have fun with it. It mm. feels like a, a hole that some of your fan- friends vanish into and, and others can't follow, which is how I felt about Tarkov, actually. Oh yeah. Uh, I'm not a massive, I was talking to, um, friend of pod, Paul Cannon about this, but mm. I, I bounced off Tarkov a little bit and I have friends who love it who also love hunt. And I think the reason for that is that Tarkov's death for simulation goes to places I'm not interested in following. Yeah, like all, the, all the gun fidelity and stuff. stuff. Yeah, like, I don't really care about switching out scopes and gun butts and I, things like this. Yeah, I, just, I, I struggle with that. Trying to get a good price for me. Mm. Yeah, I don't know, the duct tape I found in a bin. Like, yeah. you know, there's that degree of meta or macro scale stuff I don't care about at all. And it's just very grim. Mm. I mean, obviously Hunt's grim, but it's kind of... It has a real strong feel, whereas, um, <clears throat> like current Call of Duty, apparently Tarkov is set in the endlessly repeatable sort of Russian abandoned industrial mm. estate aesthetic. Um, I don't know what you would call that really. Like, so, you know, post Soviet film set kind of feeling. <laughs> yeah. Which is where, like, all, like, it's got that the same vibe as, like, uh, it's where, um, you reminded me of this with Call of Duty. It's where that, um, Fast and Furious spin-off movie Hobbs and Shaw ended up as well, which is just blowing yeah. up a lot of post-Soviet sort of brutalist stuff. Cause sort of it, no one feels anything. I think like mm. it just, it make, makes you feel a bit like you might be watching an 80s action movie, but you, you're not. Yeah. Mm. Um, whereas Hunt has a specific vibe. And so all I'm saying with that is I do encourage people to play it because it's probably the most mechanically interesting shooter around at the moment. For a game that can seem so kind of simple when you first play it in terms of like, I walked through the swamp and I got shot and I died. Mm. There's a lot of, there's a lot of moving parts. Did you know you can spook crows so they fly in a particular direction? I did. I only learned that from the, um, a video that, uh, in fact, said friend Paul Canavan posted. Yeah, that's where I learned it as well. It's like, it's, it's sniper ghost, bad ghost. Psycho ghost. Psy- it is psycho ghost. Yeah. yeah. Uh, who seems like a nice enough man? Who knows? <laughs> I haven't watched any of his streams, but. He uh, delivers a hundred facts 
about Hunt Showdown, and uh, some of them surprised me, mm. no less. In fact, the, the, how far 150 meters is is a lot further than I thought it was. That's the distance at which you can be spotted in dark vision when people pick up the bounty. And actually, the uh, the radii is greater, much greater than I, I mm. had previously thought. It's real far away. Mm. What a game. Yeah. Do you know what I want them to do? I want them to fix the spider running around in certain locations. That's all I want. Really? Yeah, because it clips through walls. It oh, yeah. it gets lost. It gets stuck. The spider's a big idiot. That was a known bug. I think they might have attempted to fix that. It was it was definitely listed as a known issue. Uh, the spider <laughs> getting stuck. Yeah. yeah. I want yeah. them to fix the uh, level of detail streaming, so that um, when you zoom in, you know, not not all things pop in. And in fact, there's lots of spawn in problems at the moment with enemies spawning in yeah. right in front of you, which is absolutely garbage. I like it when they. I like it when it drops in the. Well, apparently, uh, from that same video, that's because obviously it doesn't load the enemies until someone's arrived in an area. Yeah. Which, using that as a way to tell if anyone's been there already is a really interesting. Yeah, area. I mean, it's, it's a really uh, powerful tool right now because mm. the enemies pop in so visibly. Yeah. Um, the one I like is when uh, when one of the zombies that will be lying down pretending to be dead pops in <laughs> yeah. and they're standing up and then they just sort of conspicuously lie down in front of you (laughs) yeah Yeah. that's good i didn't know you could burn the ducks no i didn't know that either it's of limited use yeah there's going to be a time when setting the ducks on fire (laughs) saves your life and that's probably the reason this is the game of the year (laughs) (laughs) yeah Uh, is it time for the question or two i believe it is hmm I just touched my face. Oh no! Shit! Oh dear. Jeff, Jeff will know. <laughs> <laughs> well, if we're not here next week, you'll know. You'll know why, and who's to blame? <laughs> Jeff Keeley told me not to touch my face. Uh, and this question comes from DJ Beefcastle. <laughs> <laughs> that is a very good name. Dear large space dads and hunt daddies. What works of fiction have an interesting game mechanic? For example, since I love Dark Souls, I've been reading the manga that at least partially served as its inspiration, Berserk, and I was surprised when I saw one of the characters sitting after a battle surrounded by small white wispy orbs, which were described as the souls of his enemies. It certainly seems like this was the inspiration for the souls mechanic, and Miyazaki slash FromSoft did an amazing job of teasing out a full-fledged mechanic from an image and a few lines of text. It got me wondering... What other works of fiction are there that might have an un- interesting or unique mechanic like this? Uh, I also wanted to share an unrelated anecdote with you all about the good old days of the epic fork- Forky Knifey Witch Handy debate. This is a pod moment that you may not have been f- read, uh, present for. I certainly don't remember it. Um, it's about which handy you used to use your knife and your fork in different countries. It's oh, occupied right. maybe no, no. six months of the podcast. Yeah, no, no, I, I do remember this long, long debate now. We didn't have Hunt Showdown at the time, so it was... Mm. Yeah. Uh, my wife and I were having dinner one night uh, while I was explaining the whole fork and knife hand switching us Americans do. She's not American, so she didn't know about it either. As I was saying, it's not something I normally do, but I've done it for formal occasions like a wedding. I put my knife down and transferred my fork from my left hand to my right and completely lost my mind. <laughs> I have no idea how long I've been doing this and may still do it now without noticing. I refuse to take notes since I fear the existential crisis that will affect my soul if I do. Please keep do the pods. Thanks for the good times and all the laughs. DJ Beef Castle. Is he a real DJ or is that just his I don't think he's a real Beef Castle. So. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Um, Fiction, though. No. Hmm. Lamb Fortress. Uh, the- <laughs> <laughs> hmm. A chicken mot. 
hang on, is the mot is the mot the castly bit or is that the bailey? I never remember. I think the bailey is the castly bit. Mm. I think the the mot is just the hill. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah, chicken bailey. Mm. <laughs> that sounds like a delicious <laughs> preparation. Of I, chicken. I think. I think you could. Yeah, I think you can order that in a beef eater. <laughs> <laughs> the real beef castle. <laughs> Uh, uh, what were we talking about? I think there's Works something fiction about fiction that have implied game mechanics in them. Hmm. I sort of approach this the other way around quite a lot at the moment. I look for my fiction to not feel like a video game. Weirdly. Maybe this is me being a bit of a, da- bit of a downer answer or just fill in time while Marsh thinks. But, hmm. but thinking quite, I think a lot about magic systems. We talked about this recently on the pod. I think about this all the time about the role that magic plays in, in stories and in games. Hmm. And I feel like, uh, fiction, post D and D really fantasy fiction struggles to escape the pull of systematized magic. A systematized magic is fine. Um, it pulls you closer to science fiction, I think necessarily. Um, but I like it when, you know, uh, magic stuff in, 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 in fiction serves a symbolic purpose or a metaphorical purpose. Yeah, or so it's unexplained. Uh, in some yeah. Way, or, yeah. Or, or it's simply, it's, it's there to furnish, furnish a certain kind of meaning or allow for a certain kind of effect on the reader or viewer mm. or something. And, uh, too often there's a, a derive, I think, to systematize and explain stuff, which is a video this game work? to me. Yeah. Yeah, right. Um, whereas, um, you know, games feel very uncomfortable about doing, oh, this, it surprised me that this is possible in the world. And I don't quite understand it yet. Yeah, I think, I don't know if this bleeds from the, the gaming community, but there is certainly sort of, um, an edge to fandom, which is about, sort of desiring a desire to fully explain the worlds in which their fictions operate. Yeah. And which I, which I always, feel resistant to to the, I, I, and a good example of this is when um a, a director has made two unrelated films and will put in an easter egg uh you know just in back of back of the shot which refers to the previous film mm. and you know the the fandom will be like oh they're set in the same universe uh and that's that's almost never the explanation you know <laughs> right yeah it's this desire i think to be to be fully immersed and to believe that these things are not simply like text that you are receiving mm. and interpreting in your brain but that they are have an external existence that you can live in. But I, like, but I also think that the, the, these entertainments as big transmedia franchises now mm. also encourage that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, right. If you like a Disney thing, you can go visit it. Mm. You can go to the theme park. Like, I think, yeah, I think we, you, we've trained this response into people, but it is mm. kind of notable because games are literally the, the world you jump into and live in. Um, and, you know, it's, it's interesting that um, you can talk, we're getting off topic, but like, the whole, you know, the craze appeal of things like Harry Potter or Hunger Games or mm. uh Twilight or any of the sort of really massive kind of crazy young adult fiction over the last decade or couple of decades has largely been owed to the fact that they are they are worlds that play that players I, I said it uh that readers can place themselves in because that's what a system does if you systematize things there are these kinds of people they sort into these houses they are mm-hmm. vampires or werewolves they get selected from these districts for this reason as soon as you have those structures people can place themselves the character creation screen kind of evokes itself mm-hmm. um for all of those settings they're quite game-like um in terms of their world building and that's why you know no one is approaching that from a kind of like um it's funny because you end up in a scenario where uh the author is dead but not for the reasons everyone expected <laughs> the author is isn't dead because you know people have unique interaction with the text um that uh, means that the actual meaning is rendered somewhere in the space between your brain and the words on the page and mm-hmm. the intent of the author doesn't matter the author is dead because there's a theme park you can visit. 
<laughs> like maybe and, the author isn't dead but they certainly feel very bad about themselves in some yeah, way <laughs> right um and um and therefore this is a yeah as you say like a transmedia thing that can no longer have an mm. author because it has many and you can live there and it has rules that are independently documented on a wiki um the interesting yeah. thing about this is and this is actually uh, i realize um there's a really good um video by uh lindsay ellis uh, on this subject specifically about harry potter actually because so on a slightly different tack which is what does it mean for the author to be dead if the author won't t- stop tweeting about <laughs> who's gay <laughs> yeah right <laughs> um but like um uh that's a sort of a separate point but like the there's um it's just sort of interesting that like i think we've i've been thinking about this a lot recently like i wonder if we've would steadily here's the question are we steadily training out the ability to kind of understand that meaning is created when you read not it's not there waiting for you to be told it that the text not necessarily didactic that you bring something yourself to them through the interpretive mm. process and that the author is dead um which is basically the road to critical reading and understanding the effect that the things you're reading are having on your brain rather than seeing things as you know externally kind of uh hmm. you know, pure reference points which i think is an immensely dangerous thing in a world where information is so unstable and so capable of misleading people like critical reading is more important than ever and not being encouraged by anything really in terms of the kind of media we expose people to do you mean that people don't now realize that they are in some way in control of the interpretation of the fiction this is this is what i was getting around to it's more that so were people ever is a good question right like how how widespread is that amount of critical reading or a kind of approach to critical reading or has it ever Mm. been but in the era of like franchises Mm -hmm. really are we actively making it harder for people to approach things personally wholly personally rather than as i guess shared universes where uh the effect on the individuals is squashed or made less relevant by the fact that there are always external truths to refer people to i think that's true but at the same time i feel like people have become more possessive over the fictions they interact with Mm. often violently and I don't really understand that reaction either. But like that seems to be somewhere on a spectrum from uh, death of the author and either beholder to this is mine now. I will make the characters fuck. I think maybe maybe the the correct thing is to to view that all all of these fictions are something that do originate externally, but then have a, an interaction with you, which is personal. Yeah, I think that's the thing. Is there's a desire for like a commonality right like for for my interpretation to be the true one hmm. for for my view of whether these two characters should fuck or not to be the only one that is accepted and that puts you know this this is this is a massive topic there's so much stuff that goes into this and it's like, not at all related to the question no exactly we can move back to that but <laughs> no <laughs> like there's, um um it's uh it's like it has a relationship with tons of things including Game of Thrones showrunners paying too much attention to what Reddit cares about and mm. trying to avoid or um, paying too much or authors paying too much attention to fan theories and therefore deliberately derailing their own stories rather uh-huh. than have them be right. <laughs> yes. Like all of this stuff is to do with almost like an argument over what was true in the end mm. and, you know, whose fan theory was correct or not or whatever. The answer is probably nothing's true right like it's fiction it's 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 personal and you have your own interaction with it but that's not something that's really supported by the internet and the way it works and the way mm. content is shared the way uh 
kudos, whether it's literal or, or not, is is distributed based on consensus functionally. Right. Like all of that stuff hurts our ability to, I think, have a personal engagement and leave it there. Right? Yeah. I'm reading um, uh, Hilary Mantel's third book in the Wolf Hall series mm. at the moment, The Mirror and the Light. And I wonder if that fiction gets around this stuff in a way by being literally set in the actual past. Yeah, right. So there is a fixed truth there, but there obviously there are unknowns which he is filling in the gaps. And I wonder if people wouldn't look at that and, I mean, God knows there's probably already slash fiction for it, isn't there? But I mean, I wonder if people would get possessive in the same way or, or is uh, fan fiction-y about something which has a historical I think root. they do. Maybe they I do. I think they do. I think, I think historical AUs are a thing. Oh, like, yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose the alternate universe thing, but it's, it's not like they're, they're projecting. Um, no, 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 this is, this is the truth of really what happened. They are intentionally diverging from reality when they make an alternate universe, right? Right. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I mean, well, at, at that point, aren't you just into history and historians having arguments? <laughs> yeah. <I guess> so. <laughs> yeah. Cause people, they have their favorites and they have their ideas about who should or shouldn't have fucked. Mm-hmm. Like this is just the well. I mean, that's that's all really up in the air when it comes to Anne Boleyn. So yeah. I mean, <laughs> it literally that is like the source I mean, it's the... of one of the entire novels is who she's banged. Yeah, uh, and it's, it's the pursuit of canon, right? <laughs> like, yeah, like new facts are discovered and or unearthed, and people argue about them because they don't fit their head canon. Yeah, all history is head canon is basically the end, end point of <laughs> yeah. this. Um, How would you gamify Wolf Hall? That's the question. Uh, does that have any mechanics in it? I don't think, I don't think any of the books I've read in the last. Is it Crusader Kings? Six years. Sort of, but it's only one generation. Mm, the Sims? <laughs> yeah. Is there, is there a sort of game where you are sort of the vizier to a really, um, uh, erratic prince? <laughs> you could, I think you could, um, uh, what was it? Was it Long Live the Queen? Yeah. Yeah, but you are the you are the monarch in there. Yeah, but you could probably refactor mm. some of that sort of. Yeah, yeah. There's a, I think, or I think there's a dating sim in this. <laughs> <laughs> what f- for Henry or for Cromwell? Probably for Henry. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Swiping right has a different connotation. Yes, yeah. uh, the blades are involved. Like, yeah, like, <laughs> like dream daddy, but yeah, yeah. More, more decapitation. Yeah. Hmm. Um, so the, that uh, would actually be, that, that is, there is something fun in that. Yeah. What, like, cause it couldn't call it, what would you call it? Terrible Tudor? No. Um, <laughs> no, you'd call it Tudor, but it'd be spelled like Tinder, like with no E. <laughs> no, sorry, <laughs> <Yes>. no <O. laughs> Yeah, that's really good. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, man. God, that's, that's a billion dollar idea right there. <laughs> the Tudor. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's slightly West Country if you say it like that. Tudor. Tudor. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. All right. We're in business. <laughs> Let's quit our existing projects. We'll make Tudor. <laughs> you got to swipe whichever the good direction is on somebody hmm. or Ben Aldo will get you. <laughs> um, I do feel bad for not answering this ancestral question and wanging on about um, the death of the author. So I will say um, I, I think I mentioned this last week on the pod, but I did see um, very enjoyable, uh, Richard Stanley horror movie color out of space oh, yeah. last week. That was Nick, that? It, I really enjoyed myself. I had a wonderful time. Mm. It's, it's not, well, actually it's one of my favorite Lovecraft adaptations I've seen for a long time. Mm. I have to say, cause I'm pretty critical of those. And, um, 
and I think it's a lot of fun. And not that it, you know Lovecraft necessarily is is a laugh a minute, but it's got a bunch of things in it that I thought were, um, which were unexpected. Um, you know, uh, I will talk briefly about the two things I would take from it and put in a video game really happily. So, Color Out of Space, if you're not aware, is a Lovecraft story where a farm in New England is beset by a color. Make all things go weird. Makes all the things go weird. Um, and it's a sort of curse, but it's in that kind of, um, sort of cosmic Lovecraft vein where the nature of the threat is sort of, it's almost like a, you know, the text is falling apart around them. That's the, the promise of it, like in, mm. in, in the style of that particular time. But it's the kind of story that would be attributed to kind of like a divine or more strictly supernatural thing in, in a different kind of horror story, right? Like the farm is blighted because we've wronged God or the farm is blighted because we built the farm on ancient land that we shouldn't have come to, you know, but there's been some transgression. We have, we have transgressed and therefore we've brought the evil upon ourselves and, and so on. That's why there's ghosts or axe murderers or monsters or something. This is in the vein of clear out spaces in the vein of Lovecraft that I enjoy, which suggests that that's how people respond to bad things happening. But sometimes bad things happen just because the universe sneezes. And, you know, in this case, there's a color from space. You can't really do anything about it. And it's not evil. It's just going to kill you. (laughs) <laughs> like you know it, it's 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 about illness like a lot of lovecraft's work is about reactions to illness mm. um you know people uh, there's a there are a lot of i think uh, you know influences on that that man particularly that are, are by no means uh to be replicated uh his racism things is definitely a problem but a lot of his work is about his responses to illness and you know and i think this is one of them right like sometimes bad things just happen and you gotta deal with it and it feels like the sky has opened up and kind of dropped unfathomable space nonsense on you Mm. um that's that story and that's the movie to some extent but it's also about nick cage trying to keep his family together while trying to operate uh an alpaca farm (laughs) on his on his his out of his father's old house who he hated and who whenever he's pretending to be his father which is a thing in the film he speaks inexplicably in a donald trump voice (laughs) it's it's a movie Wow. It is a movie. Um, it has, um, it has a scene of Nick Cage demonstrating to a local reporter after the color out of space thing happens, the correct way to milk an alpaca, uh, indicating that if you feed them a bit of fennel, the milk tastes better and you got to warm the boob first. Oh, really? Yeah. Apparently it's good tips. Anyway. I wonder how that, many months he spent uh, researching <laughs> alpaca milking. It's a real thing. Um, the, the movie's role. good, but. There's two things. One, I didn't realize I want. So the movie opens. The first scene of the film is the, the t- uh, Nick Cage's teenage daughter, um, performing a Wiccan ritual by a riverfront in a hopes of banishing, uh, breast cancer from her mother, who's recently had a mastectomy. And that's, you know, to talk, I mean, not to make the themes of the story too literal, but they get it in there right away. And, um, that's her arc. The fact that she, uh, listens to a lot of metal and believes in occult stuff. Um, the whole movie is some, some open the fact that she owns a paperback copy of the Necronomicon, um, which is a sort of moth eared kind of library copy of a Stephen King book in this particular version of the universe, which I fucking love. And there's something in, uh, Wiccan teens versus cosmic kind of unfathomable space terror that I think is quite cool and a little bit underexplored because both mm. sides of those things exist mm. in Lovecraft interpretations, but they're very rarely pitted against each other hmm. where it's like, I'm going to, I'm going to make and destroy a sigil in order to try and banish this cosmic horror. And that is more, more, more or less just going to be a dialogue with it. <laughs> hmm. Like I liked that. The other thing I liked is a scene in that film where everything's going a little bit weird and characters lose time. And the, the, the lose, they're losing time is represented by, 
them experiencing apparently scene transitions the same way the audience is not in a particularly meta way but like not knowing how much time like you you aren't told how much time has passed since the last time you saw this character scene to scene right and they don't know either <laughs> and i quite like that yeah. as a horror mechanic because it suggests it, it you know i think well it puts the audience directly in the place of the characters right and- yeah it's well it's like good cosmic horror and good horror generally it also makes you s- suspicious of the actual mediums yeah. accepted forms of editing <laughs> yeah exactly it, it, it makes something sinister out of the actual Active. art of movie making yeah right of truncating time and, yeah. and showing you any of the important bits of assigning meaning and like i think a lot of good horror does this a lot of good horror doesn't break the fourth wall but like i'll put it this way horror is the genre where if the fourth wall breaks that's bad for you because there's a monster on the other side of it right <laughs> like horror fucking loves this whether it's you know like i mean the least subtle example in the world is the ring right right like yeah, don't yeah. watch this film <laughs> you know like the thing that is scary in this film is the thing that you're staring at while you're watching it like that's really basic but like making you afraid of the text itself is vintage lovecraft and i think games can are really good at exploring this like there's tons of creepy pastas and things that have kind of originated around the fringe of that idea and i think good games play with the the frame in a way mm-hmm. just like good horror interacts with the frame like it's not it's one thing to just have a game with a monster in it but there's another to about sort of um challenging your understanding of, of what might happen if you like you know if you if you tinker with with things like what if you went into the menu and changed the field of view and the character threw up <laughs> yeah right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you change that you, you switch to third person and they start losing their mind like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah or like yeah i'd love something like that I, I think i think that would be something i would love to nick for is just hmm. a game about where everything is well because there are plenty of games where there's no sort of there are very few exegetic elements not plenty but you know enough but I'd love one which which has loads of what appear to be exegetic elements and none of them are. I suppose we're into, into like frog fractions territory at that point yeah, and yeah. stuff, but use it for spooks is what I'm saying. That is a good idea. Our next question comes from Mark who writes, Dear all, what do you think about Roland Barthes? Good guy. He didn't say that. He didn't oh. say that. He said, uh, you've been sent the brand new latest VR kit to try out and review Half-Life Alex, but as you're trying it out for the first time, your house is struck by lightning. The fickle finger of fate, being a fan of early 1990 action adventure game Another World, sends you back in time to Arabian Nights period Baghdad, <laughs> where you will only be able to survive by regaling the Sultan with stories. Uh huh. However, unfortunately, he has recently executed the film critic Mark Commode, and that bloke making the interactive version of Hamlet, and they have used up all of the film and literature stories from it, respectively. <laughs> oh god therefore you are stuck with only being able to tell him computer game stories how many nights do you think you would survive mark p.s apologies if you get this exact same question every week we do not (laughs) (laughs) well there's got to be some good rpgs you could spin out for a while i think i think it's a great opportunity to invent dungeons and dragons oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) you give you give your would-be executor the opportunity to steer this Mm. you know you tell them the story of mass effect or whatever be like what do you think happens to garris (laughs) and he's like well uh, i wanted to live and he's like i think it's my friend he's like well do you strongly want to kiss garris well (laughs) can be arranged wait till later do i have to yes okay you can live (laughs) another day (laughs) but i didn't like that ending i think i'll kill you don't 
in two months, I will have thought of an extended version of this ending. <laughs> in, would you like to go back in time and see them all go to a party? Yes, very much. Excellent, etc. That would work. I think you survived. David writes, Hi all. I've been thinking about how games address their players and how that has affected my own experience of game narratives. I feel like narrative perspective can affect how I feel about a game. For example, though excellent in its quality, the third-person narration of Bastion put me put a remove between myself and the kid. That, along with the visual perspective, gave me a feeling of distance. It's kind of what I was just talking about. Hmm. Transistor's second-person address really drew me in. I was surprised at how much I felt like I was part of the game to the extent that I felt like I had a relationship with a big old sword. <laughs> that was... I, he didn't insist that I do that voice, and I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sure <laughs> there are examples of non-supergiant games as well. In any case, how has the style of narration affected your experience of games? Take care, David. I don't know if I said this on the podcast before, but um, I have a feeling I did, actually. But uh, uh, Divinity 2... Mm. Is it Divinity 2 Original Sin or is it Divinity Original Sin 2? Either way. That game. Divinity Original Sin 2. That one. Um, I, I, I thought that the way that was narrated was quite interesting because it, a lot of times I, f- I feel like RPGs, um, suffer from different quest designs pulling in different sort of moods. Mm. Um, and I, 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 I dislike that. I, I'm, I, I know I've said this on the podcast before, but I'm not a fan of the comedy RPG quest in what is otherwise a po-faced RPG yeah. adventure. I like more or less things to be of a piece, but I, I get the sense that, um, other people feel differently. And certainly the designers of those games feel differently because there's always comedy quests. But, uh, one thing I do like about, uh, particularly Divinity Original Sin is that the tone that they've gone for, mm. Is, is, is very agile. It can move. It, there's a slightly ironizing quality to all of it. Um, mm. even when it's dealing with fairly, fairly serious subject matter, there's just, just the, 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 it's also voiced as well, which helps. And, and uh, that unifies the sort of mood of the game in a way which other RPGs don't really manage. And it can therefore flit more lightly between fairly frivolous things and more weighty matter because it always has this sort of slightly ironizing, wry voice mm. though, with which it's written and and voiced and I, I felt that was very effective i'd say that's something it has in common with disco elysium actually both of those games are big composite things right there's lots of different voices at play in them mm. including voices of different writers but both of them effectively create a sense that there's a single kind of authorial presence kind mm. of guiding you through it that you're not getting to the guest spot where someone else came in and did a comedy adventure or a very yeah, serious yeah. thing um i think you it's more the case in Disco Elysium, but you have a real sense that you're having a bit of a dialogue with the game. Yeah. Right? Like you talk to yourself, but also you're like, there's, I, I don't know, Disco, one of the reasons that Disco Elysium is a remarkable bit of writing is it creates a consistent sense that there's a, that there's a, yeah, a, an author that you're having a dialogue mm. with as you kind of consume that stuff. Not that it's necessarily didactic, but it's, it is aware of the effect that it's having on you and therefore kind of, yeah, it's, like, it's rare that, a, that yeah, a fiction in a video game feels so authored in that there is there is a real personality to that writing, mm. uh, which feels incredibly distinctive. I think it's it's partly. I mean, uh, it's that's just. I don't think that's just like a a thumbprint of the individual uh, individual style who is who is authoring this stuff. I think that there's a lot of intentionality to the way that that text 
operates I've, mm. I've heard him talk about it maybe it was actually in, in the interview you guys did with him but where he's talking about how aggressive and direct and shocking that needs to be at the level of language just so mm. that it constantly wakes the player up um, yeah. because there's so much text to read it has to be kind of immediate it has to constantly kind of shake you and grab you which that's why there's so many expletives in it why it's so many so, such a large amount of sort of seemingly shouted dialogue basically Mm. It's, it's, you know, and that, that has the effect of keeping you alert, basically. Uh, yeah. And that is, that's, that's an interesting thing to do in a largely text-based game. I think, um, that another thing I would pull from here, which I think is interesting for handling this issue is, uh, fail better. I won't talk to a specific game, but Fallen London and the Sunless games, mm. their particular style, like they, they, they develop not just a kind of, uh, aesthetic or a mood, but their verbal style, which I think also showed up in the Dragon Age game they did to some extent, is very specifically good for handling a breadth of content that is A, repeated, which is necessarily emotion breaking in a narrative thing, and B, um, is massively tonally diverse, right? Like, um, which is this, uh, you know, the little decisions that get made, like no one, no one is named. Everyone is a descriptor, um, that everything is sort of at a certain remove, but it's very carefully managed. And that text is very rarely longer than a couple of lines and that, um, there's like a sort of, like a sort of, I would say that it, the, the writing, particularly in Fallen London has more of a kind of poetic cadence than necessarily like long prose or something like that. So you're constantly sort of flowing through little passages that are all individually evocative, hmm. but it leaves a huge amount to your imagination. And that means that you can take on some of the burden of, of mass, you know, sort of smoothing over kind of sudden changes in perspective or yeah. sudden changes of scope where you go from investigating a, a, a relatively serious murder or something like that to talking to a rat who's got a gun and just shot a crow. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, the, and it yeah. can actually handle both weirdly with a kind of, you know, it, it feels very mercurial and keeps you at some, something of an arm's, at arm's length, but there's a very intentional structure that's been established mm. there to help uh, meet their goals, which is actually not just big repeatable content set, but also an environment that you can plug writers into and have them write in their own style and express their own voice as long as they uh, meet a certain set of structures that the game requires of them, which are not just mechanical, but also formal, I guess, mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, I, I I imagine there aren't that many games or narrative game design departments which have style guides. Even right. <laughs> I feel like maybe the industry's a little a little far back on that, but the fail better games certainly do, right? Mm. Yeah, I think um not to wang on about Destiny again, but I think it does somewhat fail at this in that like the the des the Destiny Codex, the the, mm. the lore pages are really kind of the you know the grimoire stuff is is kind of an extraordinary breadth of writing styles. Like they're divided into the little subsections and sub books. And each one of them is a different genre of writing. Like mm. it's, there's, there are some straight prose there and it tends to be the weakest stuff. And there's a lot of it that's in universe in some way, but in like a wild variety of different ways. And some of it, which is like high concept, hard sci-fi tone poetry, basically. And it goes all over the place. And none of it is ultimately that resonant with the actual game. And for some reason that doesn't matter to me. Hmm. Um, whereas the, the, the game itself is getting more comfortable being a little bit self-referential and kind of, um, having jokes and hmm. talking about itself in, in interesting ways. But it's kind of notable to me that that is, they don't care at all about that. And I think there is a style guide in terms of what, the, what the kinds of things are appropriate, hmm. but there's certainly no consistency. And that's kind of, 
you know, its own thing. <laughs> yeah. I suppose the other one we could bring up in this context, because it will link us to the next question as well, um, is uh, Swamp. Mm. Hunt is interesting because it has such a profound and effective visual identity and not great writing at all. Yeah, it's it's a little bit of a letdown, the, the, the fiction behind it. I think... I mean, I, I, it's, a, it's a studio based in Germany, right? So I, I don't know that the, the people who are necessarily writing all the flavor text speak English as a first language. That might be one of the, mm. one of the reasons it struggles, but also it's just, yeah, I mean, it feels like they've struck upon such a rich fiction, fictional space and they, they just have not really occupied it. But there's a lot of writing. That's the thing. It, mm. it, it it's, this is going to sound harsh and I'm probably going to regret saying it. It's actually not worth reading the writing because it kind of makes things worse. Yeah. Like it's, it's, you, you have your imaginative sense of what the spider might be is more effectively evoked by the great model and the interesting art. You know, other aspects of the game, like the, the icons for the various powers and the sort of the upgrades are so good. Yeah. It's kind of grotesque sort of human distortions expressing the different abilities you can give yourself i think one of my favorite trait icons is the one which is something about being able to hear traps or maybe place traps silently and it's like this uh a horrible bear trap uh with two ears either side and there's a screw going into either ear just being plunged down the whole ear hole yeah. and it's just it's so grotesque but it's incredibly uh i mean what a great icon right <laughs> and like and even the character design sells you on that world like mm. you know um you know, you find yourself like you generate a character or you pull one. And it's like an ancient Confederate soldier with half his face burned off. Mm. And it's like, fuck, you just sort of, there's a short story emerging from this. that's you know, been written, you know, I don't know, like, and, but none of the actual text they put in the game lives up to that. And I think, I think the, the standard of what it would need is actually maybe beyond the scope of what they can produce. And it's, it's just a shame really. Cause like, if that was a little reserve of like great little short stories set in that kind of haunted bayou, that would also be amazing. But there they yeah. yeah, I think, I mean, to some extent it, it, um, it fails at exactly what we were talking about earlier or rather is victim to what we were talking about earlier where games, because they like to systematize things also like to over describe things, which are mm. better left as mystery. Yeah. Um, and there's lots of stuff about in that game. I mean, the, the game worlds, the, the game itself, like fundamentally is predicated on what is unknowable. Like yeah. you don't know a lot about what's happening in the map at any time. And that is what makes it so exciting and intoxicating. And really also that's true really of the setting. Yeah. Like it's much better if like the, the heavens opened up one day and everything went really bad. And we don't really understand why, but instead it's just like, ah, oh, well, yes, Mister Spider was uh, was born on this date, and uh, yeah, etc. Mm. Like, yeah, oh, exactly. Well, mm. It's sort of the way it tends to work is you unlock like mm. the very flat description of a character first, which takes away a lot of the mystique, and mm. then as you progress down the sort of codex, you get the little short stories and things, but they're invariably like not quite doing what they should do. Yeah. Like it, I think the, I think I got, I think I don't know the description for machetes the other day. Oh yeah. And it's a short story, which is like, it's supposed to be sort of like in universe and like vaguely sort of Falconerian or something like we're all sitting on the porch and we don't know what to do about this little girl that just wandered out of the woods. Oh no, she's killed us with a machete. <laughs> that's the, that's the whole story. <laughs> like machetes level two. Like, <laughs> And it just doesn't really work because, mm. you know, candidly, the writing isn't strong enough. And I think that's the mm. um, thing. 
Can I just mention a, yeah. a, a line in Disco Elysium that really um, tickled and interested me? Mm. But it's uh, I, I can't remember the exact context in which it occurs, but I think you're, you're talking to somebody and you have the option of sort of um, saying, oh, my brain doesn't work very well because I've had a crisis kind of thing. Mm. And then uh, after you after that line, it's, you know, it's... it's it's describing what action, physical action you take. It's a point at your whittle head or something <laughs> like this. But it's, it's, it's interesting because mm. who is mocking your character's self-pity? Is it your character? Is your character being self-aware of their self-pity? Is a part of your personality aware of, of that your self-pity is in some way ludicrous? Or is that the authorial voice intruding to frame it correctly for the player's understanding? Yeah. And it's, I, I love it. And, you know, I, not only did the, the thing make me laugh, but also it's, the, the, just destabilizes who the you know explaining the narrative basically right. well, the good the thing about it is it's voice. not asking you to forget that there's a frame here right it's mm. not asking you to be totally immersed it's no, asking it's, you to remember that there's yeah. an author and that even the voices you know the voices of your abilities and your personality traits in disco elysium are a puppet show being put on for your benefit mm. you know it's a it's they are the kind of greek chorus to the thing that's happening but they are not the playwright yeah, right. there's a difference, and the it game remembers that, and kind of wants you to remember it. That's why it's very good. <laughs> like a lot of a lot of fiction would rather you forget that that is happening to better furnish a mm. like quote unquote immersive experience. But books don't do that though. Good books yeah. are always playful. With this stuff, <laughs> yeah, right. There's uh, to to go back to uh, Hilary Mantel's stuff. She's constantly doing stuff like this, where she drops something which is seemingly anachronistic and then find some way of justifying it in the historic context right. and it's you're never sure whether she, she, obviously the things that she puts in these people's mouths wouldn't have been said at the time just generally i mean mm. i mean the specific phrases but also just the 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 way that they express themselves is a historical because mm. there needs to be some level of translation for us to 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 more kind of fluidly understand their dialogue yeah the bit with amble and dabs is just <laughs> <laughs> well you say that but so one uh, uh one character says you know as uh, shall we as the tennis players say cut to the chase now cut to the chase is like a piece of cinematic mm. uh terminology um, cut to the chase sequence. You're literally yeah. editing to the chase sequence, which obviously does not date to the period of the Tudor dynasty. But there are historic reasons why you would say cut to the chase in a tennis context, which is, which is actually appropriate for the time, because the uh, uh, the mm. you you a cut is a particular uh, tennis maneuver, and the chase is actually, I think it's like, it's it's some part of the ground which you bounce a tennis ball off as as a strategy and cutting is one of the ways in which you would execute a, a, a chase yeah and so it makes perfect sense but she's obviously just fucking with you because she yeah. drops this clangor in there and you're like wow oh oh uh, mm. is that and then then you yeah are you paying attention is the yeah it's yeah but it's just so playful all the time and i yeah games don't really do that very much <laughs> <laughs> books are good it turns out yeah our next question comes from Martin, who writes, Hello, Swamp and Bayou. Um, uh, so I ended up buying the horrible Swamp game uh, instead of uh, looking for a more casual yet still very cursed Swamp game. Big thanks to Marsh Beast Mode Davies for putting <laughs> this gem back on my map. Hooray! Uh, Beast Face Davies, I think is the actual correct. Well, uh, beast. I've, I've unearned my Beast Mode title, though, by being shit at the game for a solid two weeks. <laughs> 
I killed a whole bunch of people in an accidental way, but seemed very impressive. So uh, and, 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 I think I think I think the beast still lives in there somewhere, it's yeah. dormant. Yeah, like the moth. I mean, no, that that moth's dead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. Uh, I've been enjoying it quite a lot, despite the steep learning curve, which is my main worry. I almost never play PvP shooters because they frustrate me too much and turn me into the worst human I can be, but not hunt. I too feel strangely at peace after getting my head blown off and losing my hunter, almost thankful to escape that terrible, beautiful place, only to return there minutes later. I appreciate there's no kill feed, no replay, no spectate, nothing that would make me cling to my losses. Death is quick and often uh, hides in bushes, and a lot of the time there's nothing you can do about it. And then there are dogs and other monsters that I died to almost as many times, which makes dying to other players not as bad as it would be in other games which are all about killing other players constantly. Uh, was there ever a game that you were sure you wouldn't enjoy but you ended up enjoying tremendously? Um, maybe it was in a genre that you don't usually like, or maybe you find the setting of putting it first. Or similarly, is it a game that seemed like it ticked all your boxes, but ended up being a disappointment? Keep up with the Swampy Pods, uh, Martin. Hmm. Hmm. I remember being really disappointed when I was giving, uh, uh, Clash of Heroes, uh, to review. Hmm. Uh, cause on the, on the, on the face of it, you know, it's, I'm uh, in the Might of Magic. Uh, genre series which has never been a particular favorite of mine sort of po-faced fantasy battle um uh married with what seemed to be a match three game which is mm. you know this sounded just kind of trivial so uh when somebody handed the uh the little ds cart to me i was like for fuck's sake and then like an hour in i was like this game is one of the best games i've played this year what a delight that was. Mm. It made me think of it earlier, I think, when you were talking about uh, the card game. Mm. Iris and the Giant? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's similar in some ways. Because of fighting rows of dudes, basically. Mm-hmm. That's, that was it. It was just the rows of dudes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, man, so I've... I mean, this pod is a litany of things that I expected to like and didn't or mm. um, <laughs> did, didn't think I would like and do. Um, so I don't really know if I have like a new answer to this. Obviously, the all-time answer to this for me is Dota 2, which is something I thought I would hate. Really? And ended up being like this sort of defining wow. I don't remember you ever experience. thinking you would hate it. I really didn't think I would stick with it. Like, because mm. I, you know, it just seemed weird mm. and hard and off-putting and competitive and scary. And then, you know many thousands of hours and multiple trips and half my career passed and here we are. Um, <laughs> I obviously won't bang about that. In terms of things I really expected to like and didn't, I tend to block these out, I think. I don't tend to dwell on them. I'm trying to think if it's something I really bounced off. Dragon Age for me, I'm afraid. Mm, that's fair. I chose to review that. It was one of my first pieces of freelance, I think, oh, after wow. going that's, that's freelance, freelance pick. Well, I thought, well, I, 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 I like Mass Effect's and uh i i wanted to sit down and play a game for a long period of time basically mm. and uh pretend it was working um and it did turn out to be very much work because <laughs> i hated nearly every every single minute of that game all 100 hours of it jeez yeah i can only think of games that i just found profoundly disappointing but that's not quite the same thing mm. hotline miami 2 yeah that was a disappointment time. yeah that's one of my all time kind of like oh no yeah mm don't want to dwell on the sad one. No, no. Uh, our final question comes from Lorenzo, who writes, Dear Stuck in the Muck. Uh, recently, I've been playing The Longing, an adventure game in oh, which yeah. you have to wait 400 days of real-world time in complete loneliness to reach one of its endings. 
Time also passes when you're out of the game and can go slightly faster, like 15 seconds in-game per second in real life, or completely stop in certain situations, thus reflecting its relativity. Uh, two other games I've been playing in the past few weeks of quarantine are Pathologic 2, very topical, and Outer Wilds. All three of these games use time to strengthen their narratives and create interesting gameplay mechanics and puzzles. I think uh, more games should embrace this concept, particularly in the immersive sim genre, as it creates a stronger connection between player and game world. What do you think about it? What games or genres do you think would be most improved by adding time to the mix? Marsh, can you do the voice greetings, Lorenzo? (laughs) (sighs) If I must. Oh no, I'm stuck in the muck. How long have you been stuck in the muck? For 400 years. Wow, a twist. (laughs) (laughs) Um... And scene. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, I, ins- I installed the longing actually, and then uninstalled it again when I I kind of clocked its premise. Um, mm. I'm sure there is there are interesting things to it about the way it deals with time, but on 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 the face of it, I'm just not. I'm just not. Th- I th- if if its thing is oh, you're used to instant gratification, but we made you wait. I mean, I can just imagine that. That's all right. I don't. Yeah, I think so. Time is super interesting because, uh, man, because <laughs> like you have to be super careful with it, right? No one likes time missions and things. Um, time is ticking down, stress people out mm-hmm. um, because it's a number that go down in the game. I don't like it, um, but also because it's like suddenly the value of every action you take is 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 more heavily weighted. You don't have freedom to experiment and fail, or you don't feel like you do, and. You know, there's, there's a lot of stress that comes with being on the clock. Yeah. At a fundamental level. And this affects games differently. Like, um, was it, uh, Dead Rising that did this? Yeah. 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 With the, the sort of like 72 real hours to mm-hmm. uh, escape the mall kind of premise. And the first Fallout game as well, I think. Right. Right. Yeah. These things are like FOMO generators, basically. Mm-hmm. Like they can make you feel like you fucked up in a really bad way. Players don't always want that. Like the reason the genius of the Outer Wilds is it actually uses its timer to be, to comfort you mm. basically and say it doesn't really matter because you can't lose anything because you can't get anything other than knowledge and you can't lose knowledge unless you forget that's on you. Mm. Make better notes. You know what I mean? Like it's, and crucially the one thing that is persistent between playthroughs is your to-do list or your kind of list of unfound things. And so that uses time to kind of um forcibly control your session length and therefore yeah prevent you from falling down a kind of rabbit hole of your own kind of making mm. really forcing you to start again. That's why it's brilliant. And you know, it's so tough to try and like do that at any kind of greater scale though. 22 minutes is a good amount of time. If it was an hour loop, suddenly it hasn't solved any problems. It's yeah. You know, right. Yeah. I think, I think with a lot of the, uh, the sort of um, more quippy time manipulation things and um, braided explored nearly all of them in the course of that game. I mean, there is a, a, a mission. There's a, a puzzle in Braid, which um, mm. Braid's all about the manipulation of time. But uh, there's a puzzle in it in which you just need to sit on a cloud, which to you does not necessarily appear to be moving. But uh, across the course of many hours, it will move. And it will move you on the top of that cloud to a platform where you collect a puzzle piece. Um, which yeah. I guess is clever. Uh <laughs> <laughs> But you know, but I mean, and and like when that happened, I I was like, I, I was kind of annoyed that I that it had to happen. But I did understand its purpose within a game, which was all about uh, messing with time. Uh, but having done that now, I don't see a reason for it to occur in any other game ever. Right? Uh, I, I feel like, yeah, I, I got it. I've got it. 
Got the joke. Mm. Got the idea. I think there are examples, I think, where this can be done well. Like, I think mm. um, 80 Days is a good example of this. The clues in the title. <laughs> like, mm, uh, yeah, sure. Right, like, because yeah. it's essentially a certain amount of turns. Mm. You've got a certain amount of turns to navigate a partially generated narrative tree, mm. functionally. It's nice because it prevents you from dwelling. Right, again, it's got that sort of thing of go head east and keep moving because you're sort of on the clock. And don't worry about missing things. You will miss things. This is about the run, not the campaign, mm. right? And that's similar in that it's, you know, uses time very effectively to prevent you from stagnating in your progress and to keep feeding you new things to look at. Um, and to prevent you get lot, prevent you getting lost in a really big possibility space. And that's great. Um, but again, it's, it's using time to relieve stress, not add it. Mm. And I think that's, um, really important. Like I'm trying to think of, any like you know I'm trying to think if there are any games that progress in real time over the course of I suppose there have been things like um Defcon that you could play in real time over the course of like a whole day hmm. and things like that. Which <laughs> what <laughs> something really stupid. <laughs> which is what if you were playing a time mission, but instead of the clock ticking down, it just ticks up, so you have more time to complete the mission the longer you take. <laughs> just a clock. It's just a clock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that would be no. Hang on. I think this is the reverse time trial. Like you're playing like Gran Turismo or something, but your score is just how long it takes you <laughs> to complete the course. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just but you uh, but time only goes up when you're driving oh <laughs> that's very good so it's just about driving super fucking slowly <laughs> oh that'd be great that's kind of desert bus levels yeah of- <laughs> Uh, Sorry, you were saying something of, of worth. <laughs> I don't, I can't remember. I don't know. Um, I think that's all the time oh. that we've got for questions and podcast. If you'd like to send us a question uh, for a future episode of the podcast, you can do so by emailing us the mm. questions at com. <laughs> if you'd like to tweet us you can do so at creightoncrober you can find us on youtube at youtube.com uh, slash creightoncrober and on patreon at patreon.com forward slash creightoncrober thank you very much to our creightian porpoise thanks very much to the creightian porpoise my favorite destiny gun. <laughs> um, if you would uh, like to hang out with our community on Discord, you can do so. The link to our Discord server can be found on our website at creatingcrowbar.com. Uh, what we do now in the outro, we say our names. Hello, I was Chris Thurston. Hello, I was Marsh Davis. And the moth is gone. <laughs> It's not really. It's no. died. It's still there. Has something moved though? I think it has moved, but that could have been. No, it's still alive. Oh my god, it's actually moving. Oh shit! 
Oh my god, this is the best outro we've ever done. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. How the fuck? It's the moth lives. <laughs> Everybody, it's oh good. It's 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 righted itself. It appears to be testing its its little wings, ready to torment Marsh <laughs> once more. We thought the scoreline read Marsh uh, won like calamities. Oh, it's died. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. No, no, it's, it's, it's an, still going. No, it's turned. Incredible. I'll, I'll get a box for it and put it outside. Good. Bit of good news there to end the pod on. <laughs> yeah. Good a job, zombie moth. moth. Everybody's pleased about that. Ah, that was different that time. Oh, that was, yeah, there was, 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 was no pain of, in that. Yeah. Like, it was more of a, ah, <laughs> like, I wanted fish. <laughs> it's down there. And I'm not. <laughs> ah. Seal jizz.